If you have a milkshake, and I have a milkshake, and I have a straw, there it is. That's a straw, you see. Watch it. And my straw reaches across the room and starts to drink your milkshake. I drink your milkshake. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Director's Lounge, part of the Lariat family. Here in the Director's Lounge, we take an in-depth look at a director's filmography. I'm your host, Chris Karcher, joined today by my co-hostess with the mostest, Sean Smith. Today, we're discussing one of my favorite directors, Paul Thomas Anderson. Both myself and Sean have seen all eight of Anderson's feature-length films, and we're ready to dive in. So without further ado, let's get started. Sean, how you doing? Uh, I, I'm actually a little confused because I thought we were talking about Paul W.S. Anderson. That's what I prepped on. and You know, I'm... I knew that you were going to make that joke, and I almost preemptively made it myself, but decided to let you have it. What, what joke? The uh, dual Paul Anderson jokes. No, I watched, listen, I watched Mortal Kombat. I watched <laughs> Alien vs. Predator. And I watched some of the uh, fucking uh, what? What were they? Resident Evil or no? Underworld? What? What did he do? What? One of those? Tomb Raider or something? Didn't he do Tomb Raider or no? Maybe. Who knows? But uh, I watched all of them in preparation, and now I feel cheated. Well, I mean, who's to say who was uh, who had the better time then? Because those are some great films. I don't know. I don't know if you had a better time rewatching all of them than I did rewatching these. Uh, so maybe we should just do one on W.S. Anderson. What do you think about that? Oh, I would love to. All right. Well, I wrote up all these notes, unfortunately, for this PTA. So uh, all right, we'll I'll, I'll adjust. One. How about we do that one after? Does that work? That works for me. All right. We will push off W.S. Anderson until later. And we will start with Paul Thomas Anderson, who started his career off uh, with his first feature length entitled Hard Eight. Uh, so this was written by Paul Thomas Anderson, as is all of his films. And it stars uh, Philip Baker Hall, John C. Riley, uh, and Gwyneth Paltrow. Uh, some other notable cast members include Samuel L. Jackson, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, it was photographed by Robert Ellsworth uh, on a $3 million budget. Mm-hmm. Um, it Ended up getting an 83% on Rotten Tomatoes, which ties it for uh, fifth um, out of the eight films, tied for fifth. And its box office, it took in $222,559, which makes it his least highest grossing film coming in at number eight. So uh, just a quick little summary about the film here. I pulled this off a of letterbox. I like letterboxes summaries for films better than IMDb or Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, a strange... It's it basically boils it down to the simplest things. Usually, a stranger mentors a young Reno gambler who weds a hooker and befriends a vulgar casino regular. So, uh, sounds accurate to me. Yeah, it's pretty accurate. Pretty much boiled it down to its uh, core elements there. Uh, so, uh, first of all, Sean, what did you think of Heart Eight? Uh, I actually watched uh, Sydney, and uh, it uh, <laughs> no. Uh, Heart Eight is, uh, it's an interesting movie because it's his first and you can definitely tell that it's his first outing. Um, mm-hmm. it, it also, and I don't know if you want to go into the post-production history of the movie, 
but absolutely but it definitely feels like it was a studio got in there and they they tinkered around with it they chopped it up a bit because there are some things in the movie that are kind of um the the kind of thrown around um they they do he does a, a decent job of of keeping the rela- the relationships between say like Sydney and John C Riley's character who was uh named John by the way um and uh they 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 do a, a good a good part of that but like Gwyneth Paltrow's character Clementine she's kind of kind of an afterthought at the end of the day in the movie and I wonder if like originally there was supposed to be more with that and um you know, you have Samuel Jackson basically doing Samuel Jackson things. Yeah. Um, who I feel like they they may have. I, I don't know, because he's kind of the antagonist in the movie. But at the same time, it's like he doesn't even really pop in until a little later on. Um, so it's it definitely feels like a first feature. And he definitely didn't have full creative control, um, at least in the in the editing room. And mm-hmm. it's. It's it's kind of a shame because there are some really great things in the movie, um, as you mentioned the the great little cameo by Philip Seymour Hoffman who will pop up many many times in his filmography. Yes, yeah. Um, and a really good uh, lead performance by Philip Baker Hall, but um, it definitely feels somewhat tinkered with. I could see what you're saying, uh, especially with the Samuel L. Jackson thing. I felt like his role could have been expanded. Um, he's really only like. He really only plays like the uh, the menace, so to speak, or or has like a, a dramatic sort of the his dramatic portion of the film is is pretty short um, and short lived. Uh, but from the time that he sort of uh, threatens Baker Hall um, character uh, Sydney, um, when he sort of threatens him with the gun and then uh, gets him to take that money out, like that that whole stuff, it was very short. It was only a small segment of the film, so I thought maybe they could have. Did, did some, done something before that, uh, possibly to sort of establish his yeah, character they, they as, spend, as being the main bad guy. Because they spend a lot of time in that hotel room, um, trying to yes. sort things out. And you're you're thinking that oh, maybe this is going to be the main focus of the movie is what happened mm-hmm. with this whole situation. And then it turns out, oh no, I'm just going to steal your money and I'm going to come back for revenge. I think <laughs> is what they were going for. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. They definitely uh, it was kind of a MacGuffin there with that whole uh, kidnapped. Uh, I don't know what you call him, a John or whatever. Uh, kidnapped, um, whatever that, whatever that guy, whatever. You was call it a kidnapping? Yeah. I, I I thought that or like kind of, he. Um, of. I thought that she kind of led him into the hotel room, and then they were trying to get money from him. Well, once they tied him up. That sort of became becomes a kidnapping in a way, in a way. Sure, kind of like I the, guess <laughs> it's kidnapping in the way that like O.J. Simpson kidnapped that guy to get his Heisman Trophy back. Kidnapping uh. in sort of like a a legal term, <laughs> possibly. Yeah, and then they even they just kind of brush that off. Uh, even later in the film, they have Samuel L. Jackson say something like, uh, "Oh yeah, I saw that guy on the casino floor, like just pretending like nothing happened." <laughs> That's yeah. kind of how the the film treats the whole event. I guess the only thing that it does is it gets um, uh, John C. Riley and Gwyneth Paltrow out of the picture so that uh, Samuel L. Jackson and Philip Baker Hall can be isolated and sort of. Yeah, which at that point, it kind of feels like almost two different movies. Like you start with the relationship between 
uh, John and Sydney, and then Clementine comes in, and it's kind of mm-hmm. like it's not like a like a triangle kind of relationship because obviously John C. Riley and it's it's no way sexual with Sydney and and Clementine, um, but John and, and Clementine, I believe they get married um, off screen in the movie, and um, they they end up running away, and then once that's over and taken care of, then the whole Samuel Jackson's character comes in, and yeah. we kind of start a, a new sort of um, uh, plot device. Yeah, and we don't even really we don't follow uh, John and Clementine. Not uh, really. The no. only time we connect with them again is when Sydney sort of calls them on the phone, and he's almost is, about to tell him what uh, what he did years ago, which I don't mm-hmm. know if we want to spoil. Um, you know, I think most people that are going to be listening to this are people that have either seen a majority of his films or should have i think so we can we can not worry about spoilers especially since i just i just simply don't want to worry about it so okay that's fine <laughs> spoiler spoiler warning from uh here on out uh and i'll put it in the description that there will be spoilers for all the movies okay but uh john c Riley's past is uh connected to uh sydney and um you know it's it it, it it kind of changes the narrative because you think he's going to tell him, but then he doesn't. So it's kind of, it, it, it. it's, I understand what they were going for with that. And maybe it's probably best that they didn't do that because then it would have brought those characters back into the narrative. And by that point, the movie's almost over. So, yeah, I would, I would not, uh, I would not oppose to seeing maybe like a, another, a different movie that sort of follows John and Clementine more, more of like a, outlawly road trippy kind of movie i think think they have that it's called natural born killers (laughs) (laughs) yeah but i want that with john c Riley. okay (laughs) and gwyneth paltrow directed by paul thomas anderson uh so yeah so i have some fun trivia um so as you had already alluded to uh it was originally entitled uh titled sydney after the main character uh Philip Baker Hall's uh, main character's name, Sydney, And uh, Anderson actually had to give up creative control in the title in order to gain more control over the edit. So it's actually an interesting story where um, he refused to make any changes, basically, to his edit. I think he had like a three-hour cut or something. Yeah, I think it was like two and a half hours. And yeah. uh, they, want, they definitely wanted to get it much, much shorter. Uh, I believe I don't know if if you have it in your trivia here, but w- wasn't he technically fired from it? Yes. So, um, so he refuses to let any bar studio execs from set and like b- locks them out of the editing room and essentially says, "I'm not, you know, giving." He he refused to budge even like a, an inch, and he's admitted that, you know, he was a little foolhardy and that he didn't really understand the industry, um, and so he ended up getting fired. And then he took, I guess it's interesting contract wise that he was even allowed to do this. He took a director's cut of his own of the film and submitted it to the Cannes Film Festival where it was accepted. Um, and it you know, started to receive some popular attention for that. And so and it's never studio, been heard of since. <laughs> yeah. Right. And the um, the studio, I guess, based off of that, um, sort of the that sort of prompted them to give him creative control over the edit but they wanted to name the title which is kind of like a, such a power move you know it's like well, I, I i believe that they wanted to change the title because they thought that the people would go see the movie thinking that they were talking about like sydney australia 
which is, uh, I think that's so dumb. Like people understand that the titles of movies are sometimes abstract ish, you know, like, I don't know, like just because something's named something doesn't mean it has to be exactly like well, what that name connotates. If but. you look at the poster, if you change the title from Hardy to Sydney and you have like the, 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 the dice in there and, and all the actors and it's just like, I don't get any Australian vibes from this whatsoever. So no, <laughs> it's, it's kind of a dumb, but, it but, then, dumb. but it goes to show you because the studio that released it ends up going out of business two years later. So, yeah, I mean, honestly, I don't hate the name hard eight either. It's very generic. It's super generic, but I don't hate it. It's not like bad in the sense that like it does any harm to it, you know? Yeah, I guess. Um, so yeah, so, and then the other thing is that it's actually based on a short, uh, called cigarettes and coffee, which is kind of funny. Cause I think there's a movie called, uh, yes. coffee and cigarettes. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, a, it was a, Jar- a Jarmish film, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. it was, it was, I believe the short, which by the way, um, even though they shot it on film, the only thing that uh, remains to see it is on like a terrible VHS copy. Which I watched. Um, I think you can find <laughs> it on, on YouTube, probably. It's on YouTube. Yes, it is. Yeah. And um, they, it, it's mainly, if you watch the short, it's mainly like the opening of Heart 8. Uh, they, you don't get really very much into, there's there's some casino stuff in there, but not a ton. Yeah. Um, so it's it's almost like a like a small foundation of Heart 8 is this uh, the short that he made. Yeah. Um, and uh, I guess we'll, we can bring it up later, but uh, not the only time that he made a short in relation to one of his films. Correct. Yes. Yes. So, uh, yeah, this short, he actually um, he got I, I don't know whether it was funding or equipment or something from uh, Sundance Lab. So he actually worked in conjunction with uh, Sundance Lab to create the the cigarettes and coffee short. Um, so you could already say like he hasn't even put out a feature yet and he's already sort of making waves. And, and... I believe he. um he he got basically he was trying to uh garner connections and he i i if i remember correctly i think he was working on some like tv movie mm-hmm. uh, as a pa at the time and that's how he met philip baker hall and he was able that's to correct. convince him into uh being in the movie and uh i think the other lead is the i don't remember his name but he's the guy that played marvin nash in uh reservoir dogs the cop that gets captured um I don't remember yeah. the actor's name, but he's like the second lead in the movie or the short, I should say. Yeah. So I just, I just, I like this film. I think it's a, a good collection of characters. It's sort of smaller scale than some of the ensemble pieces that he gets into later. Um, but I think you can definitely tell that he's very comfortable dealing with a lot of different characters and sort of popping around to each, each of them. Yes. Um, and- the plot- and, and and this was also one of the, the first instances where, and we'll get to this later, where there's almost kind of two phases to his career. But this was the beginning of the moving camera phase with multiple characters and lots of dialogue. Yes, um, I call this, I call this, uh, his first three, I call them kind of like his ensemble trilogy. Yeah, that, I mean, that, that would work. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, this is, you can you can definitely see the foundations here for some of the other earlier stuff that he did. Um, and, uh, I, I, I don't know about you, but I am very interested to see what this longer cut would be, uh, if it is even a thing anymore. Um, he posted something on Reddit in a, an AMA a few years ago about looking into, to, to getting the rights to releasing this on Blu-ray. Now he didn't say whether or not it was going to be director's cut or, you know, what it would be, but 
I would imagine that if he goes through the trouble to get the rights all cleaned up for this, that he would want to put out. Well, it's also possible that it, it may not even exist anymore. Uh, it, it, the, the original cut, because back in the day, like people just, you know, they, they did, <laughs> they didn't care about, um, uh, uh, negatives and such. Like not, I, I know you're not like a, a big, um, uh, like a, a big horror guy, but like, let's say for example, like, the Friday the 13th franchise uh part 7 um there's most of the the kills in the movie are either edited down or completely removed and the mm-hmm. only thing that's left now because even though the movie was from the late 80s um you would think that they would have kept everything but unfortunately the only thing that are left of those scenes are terrible VHS uh dubbed copies of um with time code and everything on them and then it's terrible quality. You can barely see it. But theoretically, they should have film of this left over, but they don't because they just got rid of a bunch of stuff. That's crazy to me. That's so crazy to me. It's honestly when you when you watch like uh, other projects that are looking for like, the fact that they even found some of the stuff like um, what was it? The uh, uh, they found an original negative of like Suspiria over in some warehouse in france that no one had ever heard of yeah and then they they restored it didn't they yeah they and they they use it as a restoration because you need the original camera negative otherwise Mm -hmm. it ain't gonna look like it did back in the day um so it's it's amazing how they how they find some of the stuff and, and what's actually missing if as coming from someone who keeps every little bit of media from even his stupid little short films that I made in college. <laughs> I find that so crazy to me. I feel like I would just, I would be protecting all of that. Hey, you know? film preservation is, has not really been a big thing until like the nineties when the library of Congress got involved. And yeah. it's, it's kind of sad because, you know, you have, there's literally, there's films from like the twenties and thirties and even the forties that are just gone. They're missing. They'll never yeah. appear again. Mm-hmm. I was I forget who I was doing some research on and it was like, you know, he's directed this many movies, but only this many movies actually I still exist today. And I was just like, damn, that's yeah, <laughs> it sucks to have part of your history just totally erased like that. Part of that is also because they used to use the nitrate film and it's very yeah. easily flammable. And there have been actual fires of uh, warehouses where they would keep film stock. Um, yeah. But some of it's also just negligence. And sure. I would not be surprised if this is one of those scenarios where we ha- we have the edited cut. Why do we need the extended cut? Why We'll just throw it out. What's also weird is that I don't know why he didn't just use his the exact cut that he gave to the Cannes Film Festival when, when he got creative control back. Uh, well, he, I don't think he had full creative control. I th- I'm... From from what I could tell, he did, it and he had to even pay for it to be finished himself. So I don't know, like, I don't know the full details of that or how that exactly. Well, worked, even if but... that was the case, and he had it, it still comes down to he needs the rights to it. Yeah, this is yeah. and this is a whole other thing. Like I know, like Criterion, they go through this all the time with trying to find the rights to things. Even like other labels, like I know. Again, I know you're not a big horror guy, but like. Uh, Shout Factory and Scream Factory, they go through this all the time where they're trying to get the rights to to different cuts of movies, even though they have the rights to the original cut of the movie. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, it's it's a bunch of legal bullshit. And that's 
kind of where Hard Eight falls in is you need to either find some way to, to to buy the rights or even if you do is there's no guarantee that you'll be able to find the original version but i would love to see a, a, a blu-ray version of it there's been rumors for years that criterion was going to put out a blu-ray for it um those have kind of died down recently but it's always it always pops up every so often mm-hmm um, so in terms of themes, uh, this is where, this is, uh, you know, right from the beginning, we see him where he's really focusing on family as a theme, mm. uh, and that runs throughout, pretty much runs throughout his entire filmography. Um, you'll, we'll notice that a lot coming up is that uh, in, in he, different ways. <laughs> yeah, de- yeah, definitely different ways. He switches it up, but I think family always sort of, you can always read into a lot of the films and a lot of the themes for the movies that they somehow relate to either uh, paternal families or surrogate families. And uh, the surrogate family thing sort of starts here uh, with Sydney. Um, we sort of danced around it earlier, but uh, Sydney apparently killed John's father, and that's sort of uh, the precipice for him wanting to become a father figure and sort of look after John and John does look at, look up to Sydney as a father figure and sort of learns from him. And, uh, and that's why when the, when the reveal, when you find out the reveal that he killed his father, I think, I think that was pretty good. I knew something was up. I didn't necessarily, um, sorry to remember the first time I watched the film. I think they did what a good was, enough job thinking. that it wasn't like super apparent because like it, it even, wasn't telegraphed for sure. No, you don't know. You never know what Sydney actually, you never actually really, yeah. get to know what he what his past is like what was he like how did he end up killing him like is he a gangster what is he like i don't really know the circumstances that I, went. I kind of took him as yeah. maybe like an old uh like early days vegas mobster that's yeah that's kind of how i took him but they don't mm-hmm. like you said they don't really explicitly say what he was so yeah. i guess it's different for everyone so uh, personally, this uh, I rank this as fifth out of eighth, um, and that is really not a bad thing considering that all of these, pretty much all eight of these films are are pretty high quality. So, uh, and this being his first film, um, I, I have it at fifth. Uh, do you have a personal ranking for it? Uh, I actually, unfortunately, I have it at seven out of eight. Um, okay. Uh, there are some flaws to it and you can see the early markings of, uh, uh, definitely someone who has talent, but there are some, some, uh, some, some sloppiness in there. But again, you can't really go wrong with most of these movies. So it, like uh, making it a seven in this list is probably may, it would be higher on other lists. So, you know, it's, yeah. it's not, it's not a bad thing that it's, it's, it's low, but that's, you know, it is what it is. All right, so I think we can move on from there. Um, his next feature uh, is uh, about a year later, and that's uh, Boogie Nights, uh, again written by Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, this time starring uh, newcomers Mark Wahlberg, Julianne Moore, and Burt Reynolds. Uh, the rest of the notable cast members are Philip Seymour Hoffman, uh, with his second appearance, um, Louise Guzman, John C. Riley in his second appearance, uh, Don Cheadle, or Shidal, or however you pronounce it, uh, Heather Graham, uh, William Pe- H. Mason. People pronounce Don Cheadle like that? Cheadle, Cheadle, Sh- I don't I've, know. I've never heard that before. I, so, I always say Cheadle, but then I feel yeah. like I've heard people say Cheadle. I don't know. I've never heard that. I've I've always heard Cheadle. Well, then we'll go with Cheadle. Cheadle sounds good to me. It's spelled like Cheadle, so. Yeah. Uh, Heather Graham, William H. Macy, uh, Philip Baker Hall putting in his second performance and Alfred Molina, uh, oh, yeah. Robert Elswit. What's up? 
I was just, I was saying, yeah, it's, I, I forgot he was in there. <laughs> yeah. He, oh, his, he's got a great part. It doesn't come till the very end, but he, I love his, uh, his role in this. Um, so you can see he's already starting to bring back uh, a bunch of people from the first film, uh, Hoffman, Riley, and Hall. Uh, Hall. Uh, he brings back his cinematographer, Robert Ellsworth. Um, this time he gets a $15 million budget, so uh, $12 million more than Hard Eight. It's his best reviewed film, uh, according to Rotten Tomatoes, at 93%. And it, is, it makes $43 million, uh, about $43 million, which puts it at fourth in his filmography, um, the fourth highest grossing film. Uh, so Letterbox summary was a little longer for this one, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> set in 1997, back when sex was safe, pleasure was a business, and business was booming, idealistic porn producer Jack Horner aspires to elevate his craft to an art form. Horner discovers idealistic, uh, or I'm sorry, Horner discovers Eddie Adams, a young, a hot young talent working as a busboy in a nightclub, and welcomes him into the extended family of movie makers, misfits, and hangers-on that are always around. Adam's rise from nobody to a celebrity adult entertainer is meteoric, and soon the whole world seems to know his porn alter ego, Dirk Diggler. Now, when disco and drugs are in vogue, fashion is in flux, and the party never seems to stop, Adam's dreams of turning sex into stardom are about to collide with cold, hard reality. So that one's much less of a <laughs> of a boil down and more of a like yeah. hard sell kind of thing, but I liked it. So I kept it, it. it. It's funny how IMDb is much, much shorter. It literally says the story of a young man's adventure in the Californian pornography industry of the late 1970s and early eighties. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> yeah. I, that one's, yeah, that's it's very vague. Super, but, yeah. But I like this letterbox one. I thought it was, um, it embellished a lot and I liked it. <laughs> um, so yeah. So Sean, what are your thoughts on boogie nights? Oh, I'm just going to spoil it right out of the gate. This is this one's my favorite. Uh, okay. The uh, I I just I, this is where I I feel like he perfected not only the camera movements but also using all these multiple characters and actually giving each one something to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's not like a single performance that feels wasted in the movie. If you have, it's very difficult to make a movie with this many people in it and actually give each one something to do. Usually mm-hmm. one or maybe even more. Uh, characters fall to the wayside and you kind of feel like oh that was kind of a waste um but it, it seems like everyone has something to do in the movie and honestly like the the entire industry that they cover from the the 70s and, and 80s is just interesting like it's it's uh it's it's definitely not something that would fly today with uh <laughs> all the stuff that 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 they're doing but uh and you also have like great performances so the fact that like i believe i know burt reynolds was nominated um, mm-hmm. I think Julianne Moore was nominated. Um, yeah, that's something I didn't include was uh, awards information. And I think I. Yeah, think so, I yeah, they were both nominated, sure. and it had a screenplay nod. Uh, interesting that it didn't have anything more than that because I feel like at the time it was definitely very well received. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's you know they don't sugarcoat the industry of itself, um, and. You know, it's it definitely it has that PTA feel to it. Um, yeah, and and you know, this is definitely this- part part of the earlier version where y- you know you you have a lot of the same not just tropes but a lot of the same uh, the look and feel of 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 the movies. Um, but yeah, this this is this is this one this one I, I would uh, spoiler rank as my number one. 
Yeah, I think this is where he really starts to develop his visual style. Um, he, there's that great tracking shot in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he'll become known for those long tracking shots. And this one, I think, is probably his best, uh, where it gets pretty much every character that you're going to see uh, in the film. It gets it gets it all in that first opening shot. Um, and, you know, it's just a beautiful, beautiful tracking shot. Uh, you know, harkens back to those... Uh, you know, famous tracking shots from uh, was it Touch of Evil, right? That has oh that. yeah, yeah, the, the the opening of Touch of Evil. Yes, I actually I was thinking more like uh, some of the Robert Altman uh, tracking shots, especially like uh, the opening of the player. Um, yeah, which I think is actually based off of Touch of Evil a little bit. Um, Interesting, yeah. But uh, but yeah, no, it's and and he uses them multiple times, but almost in like different ways, in the sense of like they feel different. Uh, like you can't compare the opening tracking shot to say like at the party when William H. Macy, uh, kills his wife and blows his head off. Like that's a very <laughs> different tra- tracking shot to the first one that we had. Um, so yeah, it's, it, 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 it has a, a very distinct and interesting look to it. Um, it's also one of those ones that if it's on TV, I'll just put it on and watch it. Even though yeah. they, even though it's 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 very much censored for television, um, <laughs> even with that, it's still an interesting watch, um, and surprisingly, like an actual good Mark Wahlberg performance. And I think that might be because he's playing himself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think this is like this is uh, like before Wahlberg like got in his own head about acting, you know. I think if that's what you this, want to call it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I think this is him just being free and loose. And I think he just really worked with um, Anderson really well and was just able to sort of, uh, he always feels like so conscious of how sort of cool he is coming across in all of his other movies. And I think here he just kind of goes all in mm-hmm. uh, and it could be, you know, this is one of his earlier roles. Correct, oh yeah, but, definitely. I, I yeah. this was this was definitely after Fear. That was the earliest that I remember him being in a movie. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, no, he had he had a, a, probably a couple acting parts before this, but this was really the one that that really I, I would say this and the, the Departed were the two that put him on the map as an actor or at least even a leading actor. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, there's other great uh I, I mean as we mentioned Burt Reynolds who had a comparable career comeback to say like when uh travolta was in pulp fiction um also uh nominated for that one and it kind of uh reinvigorated their career based off of the one role and apparently from what i hear burt reynolds was not a fan of of pta uh, yeah they, they didn't they didn't get along very well no he he didn't like playing the character and they definitely butted heads a lot um everything everything i read makes me wonder why he even took the part because he was like, oh, he didn't like the script and he didn't want to do it. And I'm like, okay. It, it, <laughs> it makes me wonder because I know Burt Reynolds is supposed to be in the new Tarantino movie. It's like, if he couldn't handle PTA, wait till he gets a load of Quentin. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but like even uh, like Julianne Moore is really good in the movie. Um, oh, yeah, she's great. And she's she's one of the more tragic characters in it, um, mm-hmm. which I guess follows a theme when you go to even Magnolia, which we'll get to. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, John C. Riley, he's, he's more of a comic relief in this one. Yeah. Um, so he's not playing as, uh, playing up as much, uh, serious as, uh, before in heart. My eight. favorite, 
my favorite John C. Riley scene in this one is when they're trying to get the um, the pro- record producer to give them oh. their recordings. <laughs> yeah. like, you don't understand. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> that's just a great one for for anyone that hasn't seen this movie uh, that just wants to look up some scenes. Uh, that's a good one. John C. Riley and Mark Wahlberg trying to uh, hustle the uh, record producer to give them their record without paying for it so that they can go and take that recording and go get a record deal and then come back and pay mm-hmm. them for the recording. So it's yeah. pretty hilarious. Or even uh, when they're at the house of the the drug dealer and he's like freaking out, he's trying to get them to leave. And, and mm-hmm. uh, Thomas Jane, who was also a fucking maniac in this movie uh, mm-hmm. is, is trying to, to go through with it and rob the guy. And it's yeah. just like, Oh my God. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, no. And, and uh, you know, uh, Heather Graham also uh, roller girl. Yeah. Um, small doses. She's not in it a ton, but when she is, she's kind of like the emotional centerpiece of it. Mm-hmm. Um, like, and you mentioned uh, family before, and this is almost like a movie of a big uh, porn family, I guess. Because <laughs> um, you have like Burt Reynolds, who's the father, and then uh, mm-hmm. Julianne Moore and Mark Wahlberg are like the kids, and their kid is. Yeah. Not, not actually, but in a, a theoretical sense, would be like yeah. Roller Girl. Um, mm-hmm. but then you have extended family members, like you have, um, you know, the, the, uh, the technical guys that are behind the scenes, you have mm-hmm. like, uh, William H. Macy and, uh, the, um, um, Philip Seymour Hoffman, who is also a very tragic character, um, in the movie. Uh, and yeah, it's just like, and then everyone just hangs out at, uh, Luis Guzman's house. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it's so weird. Apparently it's, um, it was semi-inspired by Anderson's home life. Uh, his dad was actually like a famous sort of entertainer. Um, he like hosted these like horror nights or something. He was like a monster movie host uh, named Goulardi, which is actually why his production company is named Goulardi Pictures. And, uh, he used to just have famous actors, uh, and actresses just like at his house hanging around the pool and stuff like that and just shooting the shit and whatnot. So those scenes were kind of inspired apparently from his, uh, from his home life and being around that, not necessarily like porn industry people, but sort of like that kind of crowd, mm-hmm. um, that kind of like LA crowd. Um, so this is actually also based on a short story uh, called the Dirk Diggler story, which was more of like a mockumentary style film. Yes. Uh, but basically sort of followed along kind of the same story, but more in like a, um, uh, this is Anvil sort of uh, mockumentary style. Yeah. And it's, um, it actually, he made it even before uh, uh, coffee and cigarettes. Uh, we're talking like 88, I believe when he made the short for, for this one. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, you can, you can definitely see some similarities in there. And I, I think granted, I haven't seen it in a, in a really long time, but I believe that, um, the, uh, the scene with the, the record label where they're like trying to adjust it and talking about how the bass is too high. Mm-hmm. I believe that's literally taken from the short. Oh, okay. That's funny. Yeah, he's like, I think it's drowning out my vocals. <laughs> it's like, why are we going with I that like, bass? <laughs> I actually really like the um, the studio engineer, too. I just thought his, like, blank expression at everything they were doing was pretty funny. All that stuff in the studio, when he tried to record that album, was just it's comedy. So, yeah, it's so ridiculous. 
Yeah, it's so ridiculous. That song that he sings is so funny. That's just those to me were like the funniest parts of the film was when he's sort of spiraling out, spiraling out of control and, and trying to record a, a, a rock. What do you call it? like a rock ballad album or something? <laughs> just hilarious. Um, yeah, I didn't actually go and watch all of the Dirk Diggler story, but I found a couple clips just to sort of I wanted to see how closely it sort of mirrored the the story that takes place in the film. And it seemed to vaguely follow along kind of the same lines. The, yeah. It's the, the nowhere, all of a, of a porn star essentially. Yeah. It's nowhere near the, like the cast size of, of boogie nights, but it, in, in the idea is, is basically there. Mm-hmm. You even so, have like the, the, the Jack Horner character in the movie who the actor, I believe is um, the financer in this movie or no, he's, he's the guy with the glasses that, um, Oh, what the hell is his name? Uh, he's he actually plays Jack Horner in the short, uh, and he is in, he plays the Colonel in the in Boogie Nights. Yes, yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah, his name is Robert Ridge, Ridgely, and I don't know that off the top of my head. I looked it up. So, <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah, Robert Ridgely. Yeah, he. Yeah, I I caught that in the couple of scenes that I watched from the short. He was in one of them. Hmm. So um, Anderson uh, experience on Hard Eight being fresh in his mind, he supposedly came into Boogie Nights uh, meetings with the studio uh, really demanding and he wanted full control because he didn't want to have anything like what happened with Hard Eight happen. Yeah. Kind of seems like he maybe learned the wrong lesson there. <laughs> he comes in and I mean, he basically tells them that he wants to do he wants it to be NC-17 and he wants the movie to be three hours. And eventually they were able to compromise and told him that he could do one of those two things. So he chose a longer runtime, even though it didn't end up being three hours, but he wanted, you know, the freedom to be as long as he wanted. And he would work within the R rating as sort of like a challenge for himself. Which in the grand scheme of things is is probably the right decision because, um, I mean, not that it's super tame in the movie anyway, but you don't need to have graphic nudity like that and you know it's like you, you, yeah you, you got the one at the end and you're good <laughs> and also i wouldn't like you were saying earlier about how this is a great use of every cast member i wouldn't want to cut anything from this film honestly. no because like if you if you watch it and you're you're thinking to yourself like they could definitely cut out don Cheadle's character if they wanted to yeah uh, but i like that <laughs> i know i'm so, I but i'm like just saying like i could sure. see I could see a studio or an editor being like, okay, yeah. we can trim this. They, they probably would have trimmed yeah. a lot of the... Um, it's not important to the overall story. Yeah, they, they probably would have trimmed probably some of the record recording stuff. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, you know what? May, who knows? Maybe they would have trimmed some of the Julian Moore stuff, too. Yeah, so I, I wouldn't have been happy... You know, obviously, I wouldn't have known, but I think this is the best way it could have came out. I don't, I don't really care about the NC-17 versus the R rating. I think they pushed the limits of an R rating enough uh, that it was fine. And um, so uh, I got that off of uh, commentary track, by the way. Um, and this uh, next little bit, I think, is pretty hilarious. Uh, this is actually from a podcast he did with Mark Marin. Oh, um, and it was about the one scene where. Uh, Mark Wahlberg's character, Dirk Diggler, is like ready to shoot the scene and he's like all angry and agitated and everything. And Burt Reynolds tells him he's not going to shoot when he's like that. And he's like, and Wahlberg tells him, you know, I'm ready to go or something. And, and, um, 
Bert says, uh, nevertheless, right? I'm not going to shoot you when you're like this or whatever, right? And so apparently the guy who plays the cameraman, uh, Ricky something, um, he kept laughing every time Burt Reynolds said the word nevertheless. And Anderson had to ask him, he said, why, you know, what's going on? And he said, I can't. Uh, I'm suppressing laughter when he says nevertheless. Uh, this, is a, this is a quote from the podcast. I asked why, and he told me this great story of being at a football game where this woman was being introduced to sing the national anthem. And her name is Helen Forrest or whatever it is. And the announcer says, and now to sing the national anthem Helen Forrest. And somebody in the stands screams, Helen Forrest sucks cock. And the announcer, without missing a beat, says, nevertheless. <laughs> <laughs> I just think that's hilarious. So if he, uh, according to Anderson, if you go back and watch, you can actually see him sort of holding back a laugh. Like it, it made it into the film that you can kind of tell that he's suppressing a laugh um, in that scene which I think is funny. And now every time I hear the word, nevertheless, I think about that. Oh God. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so yeah, so I think this one really builds on the character strength, uh, that he sort of established in heart eight and really bumps it up to a new level. Um, I like the comparison to Robert Altman that you were, you sort of brought up earlier with the camera work. Cause I think there's a lot of similarities here to the Altman films in terms of how he treats an ensemble cast. Um, I'm not sure if you sure if you've seen Nashville, uh, but this film sort of reminds me of Nashville a lot, where it sort of bumps around to the different characters. Um, this film, Boogie Nights, gives more of like a lead character feel to the Mark Wahlberg character, whereas Nashville doesn't really have necessarily a lead character. Yeah, but, you, you definitely know who the lead is in the movie. Yeah. But they spend, I think they spend a good amount of time with everyone else. Oh, yeah. That it, it doesn't feel like it's over, it doesn't feel like it's all Wahlberg all the time. As it should be. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, and we talked about his, um, aesthetic style with the long tracking shots. Um, yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was cool and a, a good tonal shift when, uh, it shifted from the seventies to the eighties and they had that party. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you can really tell, then it sort of starts the, you know, the seventies are sort of the rise of, of Dirk Diggler and then the eighties are the fall and, and it really shifts tones, I think at a certain point, um, and gets starts getting pretty dark and increasingly dark and pretty much goes that way all the way until the end. Yeah, especially uh, the, the one scene that sticks out is is the scene at the the donut shop, which yes. kind of co- just comes out of nowhere. Um, mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it's 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 graphic. But at the same time, it's like, man, I feel bad for Don Cheadle. <laughs> yeah. Now, I can't remember off the top of my head. Is that one cross cut with Mark Wahlberg in the parking lot? Or is that the roller girl in the limousine? That's that's, that's the limousine, yeah. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah, so that's a, those are two. That's a dark little. That, yeah, that's an. I mean, I'm not stairs, yeah. the uh, when 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 Mark Wahlberg's in, in the car in the parking lot. That's not as I guess off putting as when they're in the back of the limo, and it's mm-hmm. just like wow, this actually became a type of porn. <laughs> And, yeah, and <laughs> yeah. and this is this is like a a big gimmick thing that uh, that Jack's trying to do, and it's so awkward. I actually felt real sympathy for Jack Horner, uh, and sort of how he was not not taking the 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 technological change um, well, because the the technological change from film to video. And how that sort of affected the porn industry and sort of cheapened it in his mind. And I really, I really felt sympathy for him because I really, 
I felt like he really thought of himself as an artist. Oh and, yeah. To the point know. where he didn't even classify himself as a pornographer. He would not call himself uh, a director. He wouldn't admit to directing porn. Mm-hmm. He's uh, a filmmaker, you know? Yeah. And then when he says the, I forget what he says, but he's like in the limousine, he says, and we're going to capture it all here with the magic of videotape or something like that. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. It's you can just hear it in his voice. Just like the, he's the just, he's just a condensation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I, and, and I, I really like his character and I felt a lot of sympathy for him. And I, I like that. I've always been interested in how, like what could be seen at, what could be seen as advances in technology could also be seen as, you know, uh, a detriment in, in certain aspects. He's he's hanging on to the seventies, you know, that during during the boom period, and and now he's having to adjust because he's lost his big star, and you know he's trying to update himself, and it's clearly just not going well, um, and he's struggling, you know. That's uh, the the basically the entire third act of the movie is everyone is struggling and trying to figure out a way to, um you know, uh, make it through and, and come out unscathed. And some of them do, some of them don't. Um, yeah. You know, the first, the, the first half feels like a party and the second half feels like a hangover. Yeah. That's, that's pretty accurate. Yeah. Uh, so this definitely continues the theme of family as we've been talking about, um, you know, more specifically the surrogate family as, uh, um, Eddie sort of abandons his real family uh, that's the that's the only stuff that felt a little rushed to me was like they possibly could have had a little more of that. Like, did you need to though? Because I guess not. I guess not. But if you if you wanted to to expand on anything, I think that maybe could have <laughs> used a little more, or maybe Julianne Moore's character could have used a little more backstory. I think some some backstory stuff could have been could have been useful. Mm, I I I got enough of Mark Wahlberg's family. I mean, they have the 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 great scene where his room's just being trashed and um it it basically in that one scene you can kind of tell what the the relationship is of that family i don't feel like we need 20 minutes of his backstory to to really get the sense of how things are in his household yeah yeah his, his mom seems pretty awful <laughs> well what are you gonna do <laughs> <laughs> i like i like when he's like why are you doing this it's just like <laughs> he's in tears um so yeah, so personal ranking. You've already revealed your uh, mm-hmm. showed your hand here, and this is your I'm favorite. Sorry, so I showed my cards. No, that's okay. So so for you, it's all downhill from here, huh? This <laughs> it's is all where he, shit. This is where he maxes out. So this is actually my third favorite film. Uh, so it's still pretty high up there. And again, I really feel like when when ranking these films, you know, the distance from one to eight. They're, I think one. I think they're all pretty much really great films. Not, not spoiling anything. There, there are two films that I don't think are amazing, but pretty much six of them are are pretty amazing. Yeah, uh, so, well, so I, third, I, I won't spoil it, but one of them I think is actually pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'm interested to see which one that is. Um, all right, so we're moving on to uh, two years later uh, in 1999 when Paul Thomas Anderson comes out with. Magnolia, mm. um, again, uh, written by PTA, uh, this time starring newcomers uh, Tom Cruise and Jason Robards, and uh, Julianne Moore makes her second appearance. Um, the rest of the notable cast members, and there are a lot, so bear with me, um, Patton Oswalt, 
Philip Baker Hall making his third appearance. William H. Macy making his second appearance. Philip Seymour Hoffman making his third. John C. Riley returning for his third. Alfred Molina for his second. Uh, Felicity Huffman. Luis Guzman in his second. Um, Orlando Jones, which was actually pretty much cut, but you can see him for a brief moment, so I kept him in there. He's actually the shadowy figure that is in the trees when John C. Riley loses his gun. Oh, I did not um, know that. Yeah, yeah, I found that. That was cool. Um, Henry Gibson, who is uh, one of the main uh, actors in Robert Altman's Nashville, so that's fun. Uh, he's the guy at the bar um, who William H. Macy sort of is his sort of enemy. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Clark Gregg from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. makes a brief appearance as well. Hmm. And uh, Robert Elswit uh, comes back to photograph this again. Um, this time, uh, he gets an increased budget. Uh, this is, I believe, his most expensive film at $37 million. Um, he gets an 83% Rotten Tomatoes score, which ties for fifth. Actually ties Hard Eight that we've already talked about. And it draws, uh, it takes in $48 million at the box office, um, bringing his grand total uh, to $91 million. And this is his second highest grossing uh, film. His highest grossing so far, uh, second overall. So the letterbox summary for Magnolia, which is uh, probably shorter than <laughs> the cast list, um, an epic mosaic of many interrelated characters in search of happiness, forgiveness, and meaning in the San Fernando Valley. That's interesting because the IMDb is almost word for word, except they changed it uh, for in search of love, forgiveness, and meaning. Oh, Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. I wonder if Letterbox people were like, nah, he's not searching for love. He's searching <laughs> for happiness. <laughs> There's a little love searching in there. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so this one is crazy. Magnolia is bonkers. There is a huge cast. Um, I think in terms of how well they deal with the with uh, each individual story, I think Boogie Nights was a little better in that you felt like everything, we, like we were just saying, you felt like you didn't really want to cut anything. I don't necessarily know what I would cut from Magnolia, but I feel like something can be cut. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but something could be cut because it is quite lengthy. Yeah, I don't. I also don't know what that could be. To me, it's like the the only thing that doesn't really have much to do with the rest of the movie is uh john c Riley's character but then you lose that love story between him and and the girl yeah um, it's, it feels like if you it, it, whereas with boogie nights it was like everything felt meaningful not everything here doesn't necessarily feel meaningful but it does, but you're right if you take anything out you lose something from the other story so if you take out john c Riley and um uh God, what is her name? Yeah, what is her name? I don't. I never remember. Hang on, I'm gonna look it up. Um, if you take out their story, then you lose a lot of the emotional impact that you get in Philip Baker Hall's uh, game show story, because you sort of you know that that's the dad, and that you know something possibly terrible could have went on in with him and his child, and all that. So you sort of lose a lot of that if you take out that. So I think it's it's a t it'd be a tough one to cut something, but I feel like there's 
Yeah, and, and trust me, you there. can't cut the game show part because that, <laughs> that that yeah, that that's just that's one of the best parts. Because yeah, I, I I think a better name for this movie would be just Depression the movie, <laughs> because that's basically what it is. There's there is like no, the only beacon of happiness in this movie is maybe partly John C. Riley's character, because even yeah. uh, the actress whose name I still can't remember, I um, can't even find it. The, the cast list on IMDb is so long and it's in i think in order of i don't even know what order it's in credits order which i don't know what order they possibly did it okay um, well i uh, oh, oh I, here you go uh melora waters claudia is her name in the uh in the film okay um even if you lose uh oh i lost my train of thought um that's like the only possible happiness that even exists in the movie because literally everyone else is either in a, in a bad place or has something, some issue with them or is just not getting what they want at all. Um, I think to me, the most appealing character is, and it's simply just because of how big it is, is, uh, Tom Cruise's character. Yeah. Um, Oh, for sure. And I, I would argue to say that this is probably his best performance that he he's he's had in his career um mm-hmm. next to Mission Impossible Fallout uh, <laughs> and uh it's you know it, he is i i am shocked that he didn't win the oscar when he was nominated for this because i remember being a weak field and you know he is one of those people who it's like wow i can't believe he doesn't have an oscar yet um yeah and this was um shortly after he did eyes wide shut right yeah, the year after. Actually, actually, no. This would have been the the same year, I believe. Oh, okay. Because uh, I, I believe Eyes Wide Shut was ninety nine. Was um, it? Yes, it was. It was ninety nine. Uh, I believe that Eyes Wide Shut was earlier in the year, and this would have been like around award season. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think that had anything to do with it, though, because I mean, Eyes Wide Shut was critically well received. So. No, I just meant I just meant like another like Tom Cruise doesn't seem like. He could put in Tom Cruise, I, I, at least in my opinion, has never been like a, oh, that guy deserves an Oscar type of thing until you start looking at these two movies. And then you're like, OK, uh, one of these should have. I mean, he's he's been nominated plenty of times. Like uh, a lot of people thought he should have won for Born on the Fourth of July. Um, he, I, he I know I've he, never even seen that. OK, well, uh, he he was nominated and he was definitely one of the favorites to win. I think that was the year I could be wrong, but I think that may have been the year that Pacino got that lifetime achievement oscar uh for <laughs> son of a woman um but yeah no he uh he's definitely been in the mix there not so much in the last couple of years because you know he just doesn't do these kind of movies anymore yeah um but no yep. he's uh oh and and i just looked it up and jerry mcguire he was nominated for yeah uh, i i could see that but that I still, I mean, when you're doing like a rom commy type movie like that, hey, it was big, you know. It was big, and it's a good movie, and I don't, I don't dislike the movie. I just, I don't know. It wasn't like a powerhouse performance. Like I feel like these two were, are, are my favorite. These two are definitely my favorite performances of them. I haven't seen this uh, Born on the Fourth of July film yet, but well, I'll check it out. I, I do think that Tom Cruise is kind of underrated as an actor. Um, for com- sure. Compared to some, like for example. Uh, you know, like everyone wanted Leonardo DiCaprio to get an Oscar, and I'm just like, 
whatever because <laughs> I, I i he's never really blown me away in most things and you know i i, I definitely put would put tom cruise ahead of someone like that uh, mm. but he but he doesn't really get the hot take yeah no i'll i'll take that i'll, I'll take that hot <laughs> take but uh he doesn't really get the the credit that he deserves because i think he just he's kind of saddled into like that blockbuster guy role and you know he he does a movie like this which is definitely out of his comfort zone because he's known as being like the nice guy and he's yeah. this fucking prick in this movie to the point yeah. where by the end of it like his whole relationship with the the father is just um you know he's he's just like sobbing it by the end of the movie and it, it takes it takes quite a performer to go from that kind of a, a role down to you know just losing it uh out of nowhere so um definitely one of his more i would say uh reputable uh performances but you know it's not like anyone in the movies uh i i i think uh william h macy's really good in it yes uh, yeah he's another very tragic character um i think that julianne moore plays a really good drug addict <laughs> i see you know what for some reason I think if you're I, I, honestly, I was thinking about this. You were saying something earlier. Um, I think I might cut her stuff, to be honest. If I had to cut something, but it's not that it's bad, but it's kind of like a side. It's kind of like a side story, and I don't know. Just some of it didn't really work for me. I didn't really get her whole like freak out in the pharmacy because she's insane and she needs her drugs. <laughs> <laughs> That's why. Yeah, like, I mean, I kind of like, uh, I don't know, just like something, sorry, something felt like weird about her performance. Yeah, it was weird because she was, she she was, weird as in like off, as in like, I didn't really truly understand the character per se. Um, I do kind of, I feel like, I mean, I guess like if you're, if you think about her in terms of like someone that's sort of like losing control of her mind, you know, and like, yeah. Yeah, so I guess I guess if you think about it like that, but I don't know, it just seemed all wonky and weird. I do like that scene where she's talking about the will, where she's trying to get herself removed from the will, mm-hmm. um, and she's like, "I cheated on him, I cheated on him, I, you know, I sucked a million dicks or whatever, you know, whatever <laughs> she says." Like, you know, I I kind of like that where she's just sort of just demeaning herself. Yeah, and uh, you know, I she 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 puts in the work in, in this one, even even more so than in Boogie Nights, which she was also great in that too, but. This one, it's like she's going all out, and uh, um, she does a great job. I just, I just, I just find her character to be the least uh, relatable. Important. Oh, important well, then probably too. But... Story, you know, like yeah. if you took her out, you could still have the stuff with uh, with um, Jason uh, Robarbs. You know, just he just doesn't have a his wife around. His yeah, but wife. then you're stuck with, I mean, not that it's a bad thing, but then you're stuck with him and Philip Seymour Hoffman and he's not re- Philip Seymour Hoffman. It's, it's a very muted performance in this one, uh, except for when he's yelling at the guy on the phone. It's, it's, it's yeah. pretty muted. The stuff on the phone is, is where Philip Seymour Hoffman definitely shines. Yeah. But then if you, like if you take asking about the, uh, the pornographic magazines, <laughs> like, do you have, um, have Hustler, do you have that? Do you have that? <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, and you have a penthouse? Oh my god, you have that too? Oh my god. <laughs> but see, but like uh, I was saying, if you take that out, then you're you're not left with a whole lot. Uh because of the way his performance is, you, you kind of need Julianne Moore in there to kind of get things moving in that right direction. Yeah. Um, even though even though Philip Seymour Hoffman is steering the ship, 
the ship doesn't really have anyone on it unless she's on there. Yeah. Maybe if uh, they made, um, I don't know. I don't know. Whatever. It's fine. Um, so some fun trivia about this film. Uh, so a lot of the music and stuff uh, was inspired by um, Amy Mann, apparently. And a couple of her songs are actually. Uh, yeah, uh, she got a uh, Academy Award nomination for uh, at least one of her songs in the movie. Yeah, uh, I think she wrote some original songs for like a few original songs for the movie. And also, like, apparently a lot of her lyrics are used as dialogue, oh. um, including one of my favorite lines uh, when uh, Melora Waters, who plays the daughter, the, the lady we were just trying to figure out who she was. Um, <laughs> she says to John C. Riley's character, um, now that I've met you, would you object to never seeing me again? And I, I just, there was a, like a weird line that always yeah. stuck out to me. Now that you mentioned and, that, that does sound like a song lyric. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like it always stood out to me and I was like, wow, that's a great line. It's so good. It seems like almost poetic. It doesn't necessarily work as like credible dialogue per se, but mm-hmm. the character she was playing sort of was schizophrenic ish, you could say, or, or, um, you know, had that sort of skitsiness about her. So it was sort of something she might say, uh, sort of off the wall thing she might just come out with. Uh, and I was like that. And then I found out it was an Amy Mann lyric. So but, uh, uh, speaking of uh, dialogue real quick, I, I forgot to mention how uh, the narration in the movie is uh, it's, it's really fascinating because like then the, the, the narrator kind of presents it as this is just random shit and just take it as it is. And mm-hmm. then, um, and then it's kind of, it, it kind of gives a little backstory with these montages mm-hmm. of uh, just random occurrences happening. And yeah, it's 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 very interesting. Um, it I, was a, it, it's a unique thing that I don't think I've seen utilized in that way very often, especially for like a typical feature film like this. Yeah, like randomly the scuba divers in the tree, and it's just like what? <laughs> <laughs> and the guy yeah, falling that, out of the the window and getting shot. It's you know. That's um, apparently something that they use to teach like some sort of ethics or something like that. Like they use that as a scenario, as mm. like a, a hypothetical scenario in order to to discuss uh, causality or something in uh, like law enforcement ethics. Okay. So so they'll use it like to say like, oh, who's, you know, should the lady, should the woman really be charged with murder? You know, that kind of thing. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know what they decide on it, but that's sort of how that's the, uh, the example they use as sort of like a test to, uh, examine, uh, causality in the law and whatnot. So it's it's very interesting how they, they have the narration and he's just like, you know, uh, I believe that strange things just happen all the time. And then by the end of the movie, it's raining frogs. So, yeah. Speaking of frogs, um, in the bar, uh, where William H. Macy, uh, stalks out his, um, crush, Mm -hmm. They're actually playing Frogger in the background. Oh, on interesting. The, on, uh, yeah, on a video game. So that's a little, little fun tidbit. Uh, also, there was apparently a phone number uh, for the tame, tame, Susan, the uh, seduce and destroy um, infomercial thing that uh-huh. the Tom Cruise's uh, character puts together. And there was a phone number eight seven seven tame her. That was apparently a working phone number for a while. Oh, uh, and it would give the, uh, it would give the record. Tom Cruise would give a recording, uh, giving the seduce and destroy pitch. If you called that number, that's fun. Yeah. It's, it's not still in service, is it? 
No, it's not. Apparently, it's it's down now. Okay. But yeah, interesting. He does. He's done a couple things like that, um, where he's done like websites that will direct to like the film's website or something like that. Like a lot of them seem to have expired. Uh, all the ones I could find don't necessarily work anymore. But he's done uh, some things like that, which I think are are fun little uh, extra tidbits. Uh, so yeah. So uh, personally, like I said, this is my second. Oh, I don't think I said that yet. <laughs> this is my second favorite film. Uh, personally, uh, I just love this. I think it's one of the best character ensemble pieces I've seen. Uh, I've already done the comparison to Robert Altman's uh, Nashville, sort of um, up there. Uh, I think Tom Cruise puts in his best performance here. Um, this one hits hard on the themes of family uh, super directly this time. I think choosing to show the dark side of family and how even like family can betray you and do harm. Uh, you see um, Stanley, whose father takes advantage of him, uh, his sort of wonder kid knowledge, the game show contestant. Uh, his father is really, uh, uh, what would you call it, um, harsh on him and uh, very. De- I think you yeah, said demanding. It really, the very demanding. Yeah, demanding. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for. Very demanding. Uh, and really doesn't have any sympathy for his son or any of the things he might be or experiencing. He's, he's blinded by the success that he ignores the issues that are going on. Yeah. I like the tidbit that he's sort of an actor that's trying to, you know, sort of like a low, low grade actor, B grade actor trying to get, you know, little parts in films as his son's sort of making a name for himself on this game show thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's trying to sort of leverage that. Uh, not only, you know, take all the winnings and one or, you know, benefit from the winnings, but also benefit from any publicity that his family might gain from his son's success on the show. And then that kid grew up to be Ken Jennings. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so this one also finishes uh, or features more of the um, steady cam shots like you had discussed, uh, the one in inside the studio where Stanley's making his way through the studio, possibly the most complex um um, shot that he's yeah they they break it down on the 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 dvd and blu-ray um just how tough it was to do that and it looked like a pain in the ass (laughs) i haven't seen that yet i'll have to check that out it's a special feature you said yeah it's it's on i i think the only the the um i think they released a two-disc version of the dvd but it's 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 definitely on the blu-ray too okay yeah i have the blu-ray so um, okay. Anything else about Magnolia before we move on? Uh, I I can tell you where it's it's rated in in my. Oh yeah, that's uh, right. I'm sorry, I didn't even ask you for your. Where is it ranked on yours? It, it is ranked number three on my list. Okay, so we're pretty close there. So you like you like this one? Yes. Uh, yeah, it's definitely one of the uh, the higher up ones. It's just you kind of have to be. You don't want to watch this uh, while feeling depressed. That's the only problem. Oh, no. is, and it's just the content and the length alone yeah. make this like a. I have to. You have to be really be in the mood and ready to watch this. It's not one that you can just put on at any time. Like I feel like Boogie Nights is that you can just put it on at any time, even though it yeah, does have I, some dark sub- subject matter. You can still watch it and enjoy it. If Magnolia came on on cable, I might flick by it. <laughs> I might not keep it on, mm-hmm. just because it's it's a commitment. It's a it's an investment to watch this movie. 
but moving on to a little more lighthearted uh, fare, uh, slightly more. Uh, Just a little. Next, <laughs> <laughs> his next film, uh, his fourth feature film, uh, three years later uh, in 2002, Punch Drunk Love. Uh, again, written by Paul Thomas Anderson, this time starring uh, newcomers Adam Sandler and Emily Watson, and also Philip Seymour Hoffman making his return for his fourth appearance. Uh, the rest of the notable cast members include uh, Luis Guzman making his third appearance. But yeah, so uh, Robert Ellsworth comes back to photograph again. Uh, this time, uh, Anderson gets $25 million to make the film. Uh, it receives an 80%. Uh, on Rotten Tomatoes, which makes it his seventh ranked film, critically. And it takes in only $24 million, so fails to make back its budget. Uh, bring, that brings his global, or his, uh, his total to uh, $116 million. And this ranks sixth on his highest grossing films uh, list. A uh, letterbox summary for Punch Drunk Love is a beleaguered small business owner gets a harmonium and embarks on a romantic journey with a mysterious woman. This is my least favorite letterbox summary. <laughs> it doesn't do much to give away anything in the film, but simple enough. And uh, that's sort of boils it down. Uh, there. I, I, uh, I can tell you what the IMDb uh, summary is. Okay, uh, it's it's uh, a psychologically troubled novelty supplier is nudged towards a romance with an English woman all the while being extorted by a phone sex line run by a crooked mattress salesman and purchasing stunning amounts of pudding. Okay, I like that one way better. I should have went with that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the pudding, uh, my only bit of trivia, I couldn't find any really fun trivia for this film, surprisingly, um, but my bit of trivia is the pudding man is actually real. So that was actually a real person who took advantage of that uh, of an offer by like healthy foods or I don't know what the actual name brand of the products was uh, that he purchased, but he really did that. He really bought uh, $3,000 worth of pudding mm. and uh, submitted all the coupons and got over a million dollar, over a million frequent flyer miles. So he essentially has been flying all over uh, the world, him and his family for free ever since then. Uh, and through various other loopholes, he has been able to increase his frequent flyer miles as he travels. And oh uh, he's up to like 4 million in frequent flyer miles now or something crazy. Now, so, see, uh, normally I would say that it's, 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 it doesn't make any sense. However, uh, fun story uh, from real life. Um, uh, many, many, many years ago, I used to work at uh, Wendy's. And uh, we had a promotion where if you... I think it was uh, on the on the the cups. If you collected so many of the the codes on the cups, uh, you got some sort some form of um, uh, flyer miles. Uh, I I don't know if it was the amount of say like the pudding in the movie, <laughs> but uh, but it definitely it gave you flyer miles and you were able to you know at least go somewhere. And mm -hmm. one time this guy came in, and he asked. He said, "Can I get like a hundred cups?" And we we're like well can we actually sell him 100 cups it's like we would have to um charge him for 100 sodas or whatever whatever that mm -hmm. price would be and we're like do we just give you the cups or what how does this process work because we're like we've never had this before you have to fill each one with soda before you give it to him uh, well that's what we were confused like well how do we do this and <laughs> so we, what we ended up doing was he paid for it and everything and we gave him uh, they, they used to, I don't know if they still do it. They probably still do, but, um, like a large, 
um, it, it's like cups stacked on each other and they're wrapped in plastic. And yeah. what we did was we gave him just one of those, which ended up being, or actually, no, we gave him two of those, which ended up being a hundred, uh, cups. And he walked out with that amount. And I assume that he's been traveling ever since, just like the real pudding man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, people are crazy, man. I don't know if I would have felt confident enough that they would have honored it enough to, to plunk down three grand on pudding. And the funniest thing is he was doing, he did it like all within like, he bought the pudding like the first day that he discovered this loophole, right? So he spent three grand on pudding and also bought some soup or something before he discovered that the pudding was the better value. <laughs> and, um, and then basically like, I don't know, I don't think I would have had enough confidence. I felt like they would have got me with a loophole or something like that. Well, didn't I don't know they try to in the movie? In the movie, they tell him uh, it takes processing time, and since he's trying to run away yeah. from the uh, the blackmailers, that that sort of ruins his plan. But they don't necessarily say that he's not going to get the miles. They just tell him it takes like six to eight weeks or something to process. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, um, but yeah, so the guy wanted to – and you had to do it within – you doubled your miles if you turned in all the – uh, barcodes or whatever it was within a month, there was an early bird special that doubled the miles. Cause it, it was originally, you know, 500 miles for 10 barcodes or something. And if you did it within the first month, you'd get a thousand. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think the article I read equi- it said he essentially paid $2 and 25 cents for a thousand per thousand miles. And, uh, huh. and so he was, he was struggling to, I guess, open the pudding that quickly or do something like he was struggling to do it. So he actually got the Salvation Army. He donated or some some food shelter or something like that. He got volunteers to help him take all these barcodes off. And he and then he um, donated all of the pudding to the to the Salvation Army or whatever, which he was able to to get an eight hundred dollar tax write off for. By doing so, essentially, he only spent like two thousand two hundred dollars on the pudding. <laughs> uh, that, uh, I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> yeah, so this guy was just just a genius. He's a hero of mine. Uh, someone did, did he also wear a blue suit throughout his entire life? I don't. I don't know, but apparently, he was like um like an engineer or something like or some. I think a teacher. I can't exactly remember. Uh, what his profession was, but people just people described him as an odd guy. <laughs> well, I mean that would fall in line with the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so what do you feel about this movie? How do you feel about Punch Drunk Love? Uh, I I I very much enjoy the movie. Um, it's one of, if not the best, uh, Adam Sandler performance. You can't really say that for many other uh, yeah. movies of his. There's not um, many that come close, really, either. <laughs> no, but like when when Adam Sandler's actually trying, it's either it's one of two things: either he's trying to be comedic, and sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't, or he's trying to be serious. But this one's kind of like a an offshoot where he not only is he being serious, but he also is playing someone with clear mental issues. Mm-hmm. And um, I I wonder how much of it's the writing because um. I mean, don't get me wrong. He does a great job, but like 
why has he not done this be- in any other movie since or before? Yeah, you'd think like if he was a hidden talent that's just like in bad movies that uh, that eventually he'd shine through and he'd put out a couple good ones. Um, but he really hasn't he really hasn't done that since since well, this. Uh, he has what funny people that's pretty good, uh, but still that's still kind of a comedy role. It's just kind yeah. of like a dramedy. And I. Uh, I can't even think of any other roles where he's actually like a good, good act. I mean, there are movies of his that I enjoy. I love Billy Madison. I love, you know, those happy Gilmore movies, but in a different sort of way, you know, I mean, he has a, like, um, for example, the, uh, what was it called? Uh, rain or me movie. Oh yeah. That was not bad. Where yeah, He, he tried to be uh, serious for that one. Um, Danny, you know, Danny Glover in that movie. Uh, mm, maybe it's Don Cheadle, I think. Oh, <laughs> uh, maybe Don Cheadle. It's not, yeah. <laughs> or Don Chile, however you want to call it. Chidal. John Chidal. <laughs> um, but no, yeah, he uh it's I, I, I think part of it's just be, just laziness on his part. Um because I don't know if you really want to look into it too much, but a lot of his uh his movies over the last ten or so years have just been uh scams to make money and, and give his friends money. <laughs> uh but um but no this one actually feels like he's giving uh effort and it this is this is like that weird middle section of of paul thomas anderson's career where he made the three movies which were very for the most part fast-paced you had the camera movement you had a lot of inner interlocking storylines together and then you Mm -hmm. have this one in the middle where it's just (laughs) it's a simple love story it's 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 a much smaller scale movie. It's it's weird. I mean, a lot of them are weird, but this one's may might be the weirdest. And I feel like this starts. You know, the the previous movies are are what I call his. You know, his ensemble trilogy, and I think this sort of starts his sort of character study. I don't even think it starts. I don't think it's. I don't, it's, I don't think that starts until there will be blood because I. I I would agree with you in that, like, I don't think this is a full character study, but I think you're starting to get more of, like, the how the stories are going to function from here on out. Like, the kind of stories that he's going to tell. Punch Drunk Love is closer, I think. It's so far away from Magnolia and Boogie Nights that I think it's closer to There Will Be Blood in the Master. Yeah, it's, it's definitely closer to the, the, the second half, but to me, it's still, it has enough of the, it, it's almost like a mixture of the two. Mm-hmm. It's not like one one way and one of the other because there's still some of that fluid camera motion in this one. There's there's definitely some, uh, the similar dialogue as in the the first couple movies. It's just this one feels way more grounded, much smaller. It's definitely one of the shorter movies he's ever made. I think it's still paced like his earlier films too, which in I think way, gives yes. off that feel. You um, know, yeah, but uh, but you know, it's it's. It's I don't know it it's somewhere in that middle range that I sure. I don't really classify in either one it's kind of a mixture of both. Mhm. I could see that for sure. Um so yeah, this is definitely my favorite uh Adam Sandler. He shows uh performance he shows a, a greater amount of range here um that I didn't think and like we were saying still possibly don't think that he's capable of obtaining again um, unless he gets involved <laughs> with another great movie maker yeah i'd like to see i'd like to see him in something you know with a little more weight to it maybe as he gets older i don't know he's pretty old now i right? want to see what a adam sandler uh acting role in a quentin tarantino movie would be 
uh, yeah, that could be interesting. I could I could get down with that. I don't know if it would be good, but I'd be interested to see it. For sure, for sure. Uh, okay, so this, for me, ranks fourth. Uh, how about for you? Where does this rank? Uh, this ranks uh, also four. Okay. So what do we do? So, so I've had, I put uh, Heart 8, I had at um, fifth, and you had at seventh, correct? Yes. Boogie Nights, I had at... Um, uh, third, and you had it first, right? Yes. And then Punch Drunk Love, I have it fourth, and you have it fourth. Yes. And oh, you, and, and, and Magnolia. Uh, Magnolia, sorry. And Magnolia, I have it fourth, and you had at... No, it wasn't Magnolia 2 oh, sorry, Magnolia. You? I'm sorry. Magnolia, I had it second, yeah. and you had at... Third. Third. Okay. Yeah, so, right, so. so uh, yeah, so my one, three, four, and seven are taken. Okay, gotcha. All right, uh, so we shall move on from punch drunk love and this little in between period of Anderson's career oh, real quick and- be- before we move on from punch drunk love. I wanted to give uh, this uh, theory that I heard about the oh, movie. Yeah. I, I actually, I started to read a cool theory and then I stopped reading it thinking it might be the one you have. So uh, well, wanna... what, what very briefly, what was the, the one that you were reading? The Superman thing. Yes. That's uh, that is okay. what I was, yeah. 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 So there's there's a theory going out that um that the the movie itself is the, a, a retelling of the Superman story, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of it's based off of um the fact that you have uh, Adam Sandler's main uh, his main character only wears uh a blue a blue suit yeah. and red in in his tie and then the white mm-hmm. shirt so it's like red white and blue Superman colors yes. and yeah. um. I guess I like I like when they ask him about the suit and he's just like I don't know like <laughs> I don't know why I'm wearing this suit and uh, you have I guess uh, uh, Emily Watson's character is like the lowest lane of the movie and then oddly enough like because his relationship with his sisters is so toxic and uh, they 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 constantly are are, are messing with him and and uh, emotionally abusing him um, mm-hmm. they're all they're always wearing green so they're viewed as like kryptonite. Mm. And uh, I believe um, Philip Seymour Hoffman, who is the mattress salesman, which, by the way, that mattress uh, commercial, that's uh, a special feature on the on the disc. Yeah. Very funny. Yes. Very funny. Yeah, um, for sure. He uh, he is. I think he's supposed to be like the, the Lex Luthor of of the, uh, the story. Um, Interesting. But yeah, it's it's. There's more to it too that I can't remember, but it's basically they're 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 trying to uh, the 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 premises are retelling the story of Superman and um, I know I know one additional aspect you what, what uh, either forgot or didn't read uh, the ability to fly yes yes yeah so Superman obviously can fly and um, Barry is collecting the pudding cups in to, order to yes. uh, to fly so so there's that um, and just generally. Uh, kind of feeling like an alien in a strange world sort of sort of deal like superman yeah there's there's way more to it than than what i remembered but yeah that's i started i started to listen to a a video um about it and then i was like wait this is probably what sean was was alluding to so i stopped and i was like i would i want to hear it from him so also um i again another uh i I mentioned i just mentioned not too long ago another uh great philip Seymour hoffman uh performance in one of uh pta's movies yeah Uh, he's not in it much but uh especially towards the end when he goes to confront him in the mattress store 
that scene is so good. And, and he's, he's still got like, the phone in his hand. Yeah. He, and, he's, you know, he's on the phone with them for those of you who haven't seen the film. He's, uh, he's on the phone with Philip Seymour Hoffman, who's been, um, sort of the architect of this blackmail campaign. That's, uh, that they've been blackmailing, uh, Barry after he dialed a phone sex worker and gave him his credit card number and stole his information. They've been blackmailing him to try to get money out of him. And he eventually sort of fed up and he gets a hold of the guy. I love, I love how he, he calls the blackmailers to let them know that he's going away to, (laughs) on a trip to to let them know that he'll be back. It's like, (laughs) yeah, yeah. He's, he's so odd and so great. And so he calls, and I forget exactly what the first half of their conversation is, but he he gets like so mad that he basically like destroys the phone that he's holding, right? Mm-hmm. And and continues to hold that phone as he travels all the way to the mattress store to to uh, I guess like assert his yeah, uh, basically to tell him off, you know, to tell him off, yeah, and and storms in there with this cord corded phone, you know, this wall this uh, wall phone with the cord still still wrapped around his hands and uh tells him off in just a great scene that scene's really and great as he's just, leaving like phil schoenhoff yeah. and won't let him get the last word he's yeah. just like yeah fuck you buddy <laughs> yeah he turns around he's like i told you <laughs> <laughs> okay okay <laughs> yeah that's that there's so much there's so much great in that scene so much comedy so much good acting so much perfect timing and everything that's definitely one of my favorite scenes. That one and the car crash scene where he beats the crap out of everyone with a, a tire iron. Mm-hmm. I think those are two of my favorite scenes. Oh, also, I just thought of another thing that could relate to the Superman bit. Um, when he goes to Hawaii, he goes to the phone booth. Oh, yeah. To- I think that actually that was mentioned in there, too. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not a booth like like Superman's used to, but it's hey, close enough. Yeah, ah, Close enough. Yeah. So I thought that was pretty funny. All right, so I think we are good to move on to uh, the next film, which is his fifth film, uh, 2005, three years after Punch Drunk Love. He comes out with There Will Be Blood, uh, written oh, by 2007. Paul 2007? Yes. Oh, I wrote the wrong date. So he took five years off. Look at that. Um, which makes sense. This is a pretty intense film. Yeah. Um. Uh, da, 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 da. Now you threw me off. It was 2007. Yeah, you're right. Holy crap. Bad Chris doing bad research. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so written by Paul Thomas Anderson again, but this time adopted from a novel uh, by Upton Sinclair uh, entitled Oil. Um, this one's starring um, newcomers Daniel Day-Lewis, Paul Dano, and um, Syrian Hines. I, I don't know how you I think pronounce that's, I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, and so... Uh, uh, rest of the notable cast members, I don't really have any. Uh, this was kind of a complete break from all the characters that he's used in his previous films. The only thing uh, I remember is uh, Paul F. Tompkins shows up for like a scene. Yeah. Yes, yeah. That's all I remember. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't really know Paul F. Tompkins that well, um, so I didn't include him in uh, notable cast me- or notable it's not cast really me- noticeable but yeah it's it's he is a repeat yes but yeah. yeah um but yeah so i think that's kind of interesting considering you know every film before this he's at least reused someone yeah um, i don't think anyone is reused in this one which that goes to show is like other than like philip seymour hoffman that's kind of the trend in the in the last couple or the last few movies that, that he's had in this new version of his career. 
Yeah, resetting and using new guys. Well, I mean, I guess in uh, Phantom Thread, he reuses uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, but... And he does have Joaquin Phoenix twice, but you know, it, it, true, yeah, whatever. Well, I guess I mean when you get a good when you get a when you get a talent like uh, Daniel Day Lewis to agree to be in your film, you're not going to turn him down, you know. No, of course not. <laughs> uh, I did read something, and I didn't write it down because I couldn't. I didn't write down any trivia that I couldn't um, corroborate. I couldn't find uh, multiple sources, so I didn't write this down because I couldn't find multiple sources. But I did find that um, he did initially want Philip Seymour Hoffman to play. Uh, the guy who, uh, his like brother, his like fake brother or whatever, he initially, they initially, apparently initially wanted, um, Hoffman to play that role, but he was busy filming, um, Synecdoche. Okay. So he couldn't do that. So they, uh, and it, the tri- the little bit of trivia said that, uh, you know, he also kind of wanted like a fresh restart. So it kind of worked out better anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, so that was the only sort of thing that I saw, uh, there. So, uh, yeah, um, Robert Ellswit, Ellswit comes back again as cinematographer. Uh, he gets another $25 million, so same budget as Punch Drunk Love. Uh, Which is interesting because this is budgeted less than Magnolia, yet feels way more expensive. Yeah, I think Magnolia just has such a big scope, you know, to it. And so is, does this one. I think in terms of like characters and stuff, it's so it's a lot more narrower that I mean, you're dealing with a lot more natural, uh, like on location shooting. Yeah, but you're dealing with like big landscapes and the oil drilling and and you have to. That's not really necessarily expensive. Oh, yes, it is. (laughs) They uh, apparently they filmed in uh, some Texas town that like was an oil uh, oil thing or whatever and they like already had some of the wells there built and they just had to build like some of the shacks and stuff around it so i think especially when you're shooting on location as opposed to building sets like they did for magnolia um that's probably how they were able to keep their budget down for this i i i think the magnolia was probably above the line cost because they had so many big name actors that they had to pay them all True. I think that, that may too. have been what it is, as opposed to like this, where it's you just got they the old day Lewis game show set too. That's got to be expensive. Yeah, the... no, I. Uh, but in general, period pieces and uh, things of the matter are very, very expensive to do. So I just it's it's especially considering how it's this... impressive. It's definitely impressive that yeah. just that twenty five million dollars made this film. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, it's it. Uh, Critically, did very well, 91%, which is tied for uh, second behind Boogie Nights, um, critically. And it did well at the box office, too, making uh, $76 uh, million, uh, bringing his grand total to 192 And this is his best, uh, this is his highest grossing film, uh, box office-wise. Yeah, not surprised. And, and also, uh, one of his only movies that became a meme. A meme? Yes. The the milkshake. Oh, oh, oh. I've never seen that as a meme. Oh, it's 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 a meme. I mean it's part of my life. Like I <laughs> I I I almost started this podcast. I like as soon as we started recording, I just wanted to go draining. <laughs> that's that's how I wanted to start it, but I didn't. Um yeah, so here's a fun little fact about that whole milkshake thing. That's actually partially a real 
um, a real line pulled from a transcript of a court case um, in which a senator was asked to explain drainage to the court. So the senator um, was involved in some sort of bribery uh, thing and uh, with oil drills and the rights to land and stuff like that. And uh, they were asking him like to explain drainage and he came up with the milkshake one. Obviously it probably wasn't that embellished and uh, you know, that intense, but he sort of came up with the idea of like, if you have a milkshake and I take my straw and I drink it, you know, like that sort of thing. So he didn't make that up completely off the top of his head, um, which I think is pretty interesting that somebody actually, uh, tried to use milkshakes as a way to illustrate the concept of drainage. Yeah, I mean it's it's so over the top, and I I can understand why some people would not like the ending, but it's so bonkers that you kind of have to you have to love it. Like it's mm-hmm. oh, I love it. <laughs> you're you're. I mean, he's basically gone through all this terrible terrible stuff that has happened to him, and and highs and lows of his, of the business, and he's you know pushed away everyone that he's ever known, and and this you know this guy just comes in and he's he's been a foil in in his uh in his business for many many years and he's just like well you know what fuck you buddy i'll just drink your milkshake (laughs) and then beat you over the head with a bowl i drink your milkshake drink it all up yeah that that is that might be if i had to pick one scene from all of these films that is that's probably my favorite scene it's the most recognizable scene and probably line but i think it's because of the meme factor of it to me and i i guess i'll i'll just beat you to the punch with this one this is my number two uh Mm. on uh on the the filmography um Mm -hmm. it's it, it might be the best looking movie that he's made um i know it won the oscar for cinematography um Mm -hmm. and definitely well deserved uh Daniel Day-Lewis also won for lead actor, and I believe this is the only time any of PTA's actors have won an Oscar. Hmm. Um, and uh, de- definitely well-deserved in in that regard. He is just uh, a tour de force in the movie. He just commands every scene that he's in. He's uh, not a very nice guy, but you can't help but like to watch him. Mm-hmm. He's an engaging character for sure. To the point where it's like, yeah, the I forget his the character's name, but the, the Paul Dano's character, the the preacher, like Eli. Eli, he is he's in the right here, and you kind. And it might be part of the way that he's um, portrayed in the movie and 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 acted by uh, Paul Dano, but like you kind of don't like him. <laughs> no, you definitely don't like him. Even if he's in the right, which I don't even think I ever even stopped to consider until you said that. I don't like him. He's slimy. Yeah. He's, he's I, like, he's the underbelly of this, you know, this religion thing that's sort of, and I think that's part of the reason why he was even casted in that because he can portray it in that regard. But like, I have, I have an interesting tidbit on that. If okay. Like it. So Paul Dano is actually only intended to play one of the brothers during the filming. Hmm. Uh, and then he, uh, Anderson recast after they filmed the first scene with Paul Dano, where he's, um, telling, uh, Daniel day Lewis about his family's oil farm. I, I guess Anderson liked him so much that he was literally just like, I'm going to make the brothers twins and you're going to play both of them. <laughs> and so he literally had four days apparently to prepare for that role 
the role that he plays, which makes it even more incredible because I think he does a he does a really good job. You know, just uh, you know, as much credit as Daniel Day Lewis gets for the film, I think Paul Dano just goes all in on that character and just you know he's quiet and he's reserved, but especially the uh, you know those scenes when he's uh, preaching to his congregation and he's just he's like wilding out and he's doing all that like sermon uh, sermon stuff and I I just I found that super captivating and, and just a really great performance from him. Yeah. And uh, oddly enough, like he's one of those type of actors that he's just inherently creepy and I don't know what it is. <laughs> like there's, there's not a single movie that he's in where you don't just think, wow, that guy's creepy. Yeah. Uh, Swiss army man, possibly his least creepy role, but still some creep factor. Still in some, there. <laughs> yeah, it's still a little, because by I the end know. it's like, Oh, he may have killed these people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Spoiler. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> um, uh, I haven't seen that movie, Love and Mercy, the uh, Beach Boys movie. And he's probably creepy in that, too. I, I, I'm willing to bet. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he's great. Um, Daniel Day-Lewis is great. The kid who plays, um, what's his, HG or HW? HW? Yeah, his son. Yeah, he's pretty good. He doesn't have a lot of you know speaking roles or anything, but he does his part. It's, just, it's, a, it's a fairly small cast, mm-hmm. you know. Um, not a lot of speaking lines to, not a lot of notable speaking lines to anyone. Uh, <clears throat> another little interesting bit of trivia, um, and I've heard this one a million times, so I'm sure you have. Uh, it was actually shot very close to No Country for Old Men, like in the yes, town. Yes, I have heard that. Like, yeah, yeah, and supposedly the oil explosion from There Will Be Blood put so much smoke in the air that it caused delays for the, uh, for the Coen brothers, no country for old men. Yeah. And then they got them back at the Oscars. <laughs> <laughs> Cause yeah. I still contend if no country for old men didn't come out that year, then there will be blood probably would have swept everything. Yeah. I mean, they're both great movies and I, uh, I don't think I was fully engrossed in, uh, film at that point. I was only like 15 and hadn't really gotten into movies that much. So, I definitely didn't see these when they came out and wasn't paying attention to the uh, Academy Awards that year. But uh, I'd have a hard time choosing between the two of them because they're just two fantastic films. And the fact that they were filmed practically right next to each other is just pretty crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so this is actually my favorite film. Uh, So this is number one. I I agree with the box office stats that this is the best. (laughs) And... uh, yeah, I just I love this film. I love Daniel Day Lewis's performance. I love the tone that it sets. I love. Um, I think this might have been the first PTA film that I seen. Do you do you recall what order you've seen them in? Oh, oh, see, I remember seeing Boogie Nights when I was younger. Oh <laughs> uh, wow, interesting. Um, I probably uh, I would say probably I saw Boogie Nights first, and then probably magnolia after that and then there will be blood okay so you you almost followed the order yeah kind of um yeah i think i'm pretty sure there will be blood was the first one i seen and i just was like totally blown away um from there on then i think i went back and filled in all the gaps before that and then was able to see the next one in theaters luckily uh but yeah, I just I can't say enough about this movie. I just I really love it. I think the moments where it's nice and quiet, and uh, I think the soundtrack is just one of the best soundtracks um, ever. It's the ranges from 
you know, soft music that plays during his, uh, that piano music that plays during his speech to the, to the, the town people that he's coming in to drill the oil in is, is great. I actually used that music and that whole speech. Actually, I used this whole film, uh, for, a, for a video essay. Um, I did last quarter, uh, which is pretty cool. And I used that speech and just edited the, edited it, I chopped it up a little bit. And so that song was stuck in my head forever. That sort of melody for that piano riff there. And then the fast paced music when the mind starts going and all that. I just, I love, I love the, the soundtrack to this film. I know you're a big soundtrack guy. Yes. To the point where I call them scores instead of soundtracks. Okay. Well, yeah, it is actually a score. A soundtrack is when it when, has when, music, but yeah, when I hear soundtrack, I think of like, act, like pre-made mu- or music that had yeah. already existed that was put on into the movie. You are correct. That is, I'm misusing the word. That is correct. It's the score, not the soundtrack. Soundtrack is when there's, <clears throat> songs like you know already record like you just said yeah, already like, rec- like guardians of the galaxy would be a correct. soundtrack yeah correct yes i was misusing the phrase it's the score you're right <clears throat> i am not a huge score person <laughs> <laughs> hence my uh my misusing of the word there but i i do actually i have actually listened to this in its entirety which i don't think i can say about any other score ever maybe interesting Star Wars. I've listened to Star Wars and John well, uh, Empire Strikes Back is probably the best Star Wars score of any of them because you got well, not to get off into a tangent, but <laughs> uh, but you have you know all the recognizable themes in there as opposed to just the original where it's like you don't even have the the Empire theme in the original. You just have the Star Wars main theme and then a couple side beats of uh, music. Um, mm-hmm. Fun fact though, uh, well, not, I don't know if it's so fun, but uh, the score to Mission Impossible Fallout. Very good. Highly recommended. <laughs> That's not a fun fact. It's uh, it's <laughs> it's, it's not it's even a, a fact <laughs> in in the sense of the word fact. Oh, it is a fact. And the uh, the guy that did the score is uh, one of the um uh uh he's a, a protege of Hans Zimmer. So that's why it's 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 very uh Zimmer ish with the the score for that movie. And I think he has a good future ahead of him. All right. Well, whatever his has... name is, I wish I could remember his name. This has been the Mission Impossible podcast. Thank you for <laughs> Do you want to do all, all the movies? <laughs> <laughs> I would do that, actually. Uh, I think I'm pretty much done with that. Anything else to say on there will be blood? No, not really. I think uh, it, you know, it, it, it may not have as many talking points as some of the other movies, but that doesn't mean it's not as good. Uh, it's just there's there, there's so much. And you, you can even get into like the, the, the family dynamic, which is the relationship oh, yeah. with the son and even in, in in a weird sort of way, a relationship with the people of the town that he's taking over to drill the oil, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's it it's still there. Like the the common theme that 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 you're bringing up for all these movies, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's it's definitely one that you know it's it, it it it's 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 not the easiest of watches either. It's not one of those ones where you can you can put on and and just start it at any time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's definitely an important, uh, one to, and to, to, to watch. And I feel like, I mean, it's been what, 11 years since it came out. I, I, I think that it's going to be remembered as one of those like all time classics Yeah, in, in, I think the, so in the same way that like, you know, everyone reveres like the Godfather and I know. think it's been, I think it's already sort of has this reputation as like a, one of the the uh, the greatest sort of modern classics <clears throat> you see it on a lot of those lists of uh best films of the you know the 21st century and that kind of stuff mm-hmm. uh and i believe it's even topped a couple of those lists so 
Um, it'll be interesting to see whenever they put out, whenever like someone like AFI or something puts out like another um, big list uh, where that where that'll end up. Mm-hmm. On there. Also, uh, something interesting that I don't think we talked about is the opening. Uh, not having any dialogue for the first uh, 15 minutes or so is pretty bold, I'd have to say. Eh, Kubrick did it first. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> <laughs> the, you're following in the footsteps of a, of a fairly bold man there as well. Yeah. Uh, it's not, ne- not, not that it's necessarily like a mainstream film anyway, or that it was ever really intended to be a mainstream film, but, uh, I just, I'm impressed by that. And it doesn't feel like anyone can do that, but you know, most of the time you're going to feel like, okay, why is nobody talking sort of thing? Like this doesn't, you never think like no one's spoken yet. You know, you mm-hmm. kind of, they visually engross you in the story before they audit auditorially engross you <laughs> yeah that makes sense all right so moving on from there will be blood uh anderson takes five years off this time um or again actually and uh comes out with the master uh written by paul thomas anderson uh starring philip seymour hoffman uh in his fifth uh pta film <clears throat> Would you Excuse consider me, him just, the lead? Or uh, I personally, I think that Joaquin Phoenix is the lead of of this one. He is, but for some reason, IMDb puts it as Philip Seymour Hoffman. Mm-hmm. I just That's interesting. It, I just did it in the order that they had it. Um, but it, but it does say it does have all three of them uh, starring. So Joaquin Phoenix and Amy Adams. Even though I think Amy Adams, you might even have a case to bump her down from the starring role, but. Oh, well, uh, yeah, well, here you go. Uh, Oscar nominations. Philip Seymour Hoffman was nominated for supporting and Joaquin uh, was weird. nominated for lead. That's weird that uh, IMDb did that then. But but yeah, I I, uh, I think it's uh, this is definitely um, Hoffman's most involved uh, role for PTA. Um, the one where he you know, this is where he sort of comes out of the um, notable cast member section and moves into the starring section here. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe Magnolia a little bit more too, but eh, uh, no, I would definitely say this one. This is <clears throat> this is the one where it's like he's get, he's put front and center of the whole movie, as opposed to like yeah. just having a bit role in. Um, yeah, you know, Magnolia is an ensemble piece, so it's hard to technically say. Who yeah, really in that, but but yeah, uh, Joaquin Phoenix and uh, Amy Adams make their first uh, appearances in Anderson's films, and uh, also has Laura Dern. Uh, Remy Malek, uh, Jillian Bell, who is in uh, 22 Jump Street and Workaholics, um, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, Jesse Plemons from uh, Breaking Bad. Oh, yeah. yeah I forgot he was Breaking in that. Bad. He's he's the son, right? Yes, he's the son, yeah. Just has that weird face, man. Just every time I oh. see his face, I'm like something like beady about his eyes or something. He's, he just, yeah, I know. He's he's kind of like the, not not creepy like Paul Dano, but you know something's up with him. Like, the, yeah. he, he shouldn't be trusted. You can never trust uh, Todd Jesse Plemons at, at all. No, he's, I don't trust him. He's a character not to be trusted. Uh, this is actually the first film that Anderson brings in a new cinematographer. Mm-hmm. Uh Mahahi Mala Mare Jr. And that's probably definitely butchering that movie. I'm, I'm sorry, Mr. Mahamare. Uh, so Elzu was actually filming The Born Legacy, which I think is a mistake on his part. Which one's I, that one? Is that the Jeremy Renner one? Yes, that's the, uh, oh. that's the 
Renner reboot one. So I'm going to go ahead and say he uh, he made the wrong choice there. Um, <laughs> but it is interesting that uh, Anderson didn't choose to like wait for him or something, being as that he's worked with him in every film. Well, uh, it's one of those situations, and it happens with a bunch of movies where you know you get the, you finally get the funding and i'm i don't think you said what the budget was but i'm sure it wasn't too high oh 30, yeah, 32 32 is yeah, kind of high. high so yeah. you, you get the money and, and the funding and everything and it's like well now the producers or you know whoever is is funding the project they you you need to do it now and yeah i feel like i read somewhere that this was stalled too for a while it was in development yeah, probably, um, probably was. But, so he he had been working on this for a while. But they but they definitely had to start shooting when they got you know funding and and all the money for it. So I can yeah. I can totally see why something like that like that would happen. I have uh, uh yeah. So like you said, uh, thirty two million dollars. Uh, this one cost to make. So you got a bit of an increased budget from there. Will be blood. And uh, now this one I could see being made with a bit of a smaller budget, so it's kind of interesting. Um, uh, I think a lot of the money uh, went to not only just above the line costs because you do have you know three actors who can and probably did demand uh, higher wages, but um, also uh, they shot it in uh, seventy or sixty-five, but seventy millimeter. Yes, I found a lot of really interesting tidbits on this about the film stock that they used and some of the fun little. Uh, things that they did to it. I didn't necessarily want to include all those tidbits on he- on this podcast because I feel like that's just something me and you personally would be interested in, and yeah, most probably. people don't really care about film stock and whatnot. But um, but yeah, he like apparently did some really fun and interesting things, uh, experiments with the film stock and the aspect ratios. And yeah, because I, I know that they were doing like testing and everything too. Then that's probably mm-hmm. another reason why it took so long. Uh, yeah. to, to prep and everything but yeah no it's uh they were it was kind of a shame because they didn't even they they only released the, the the 70 millimeter version in like a couple theaters so it was really tough to, to even find <coughs> uh, i didn't actually even see, see this one in theaters um oh, you didn't? No, it didn't play near me uh, Interesting. I, I had to wait for it to come out on uh blu-ray to actually see it i definitely seen it in theaters and i live near you i don't remember where i seen it at though yeah, I don't know. I that, I'm that's what I remember. I couldn't I couldn't find my my uh chance to see it. So I interesting. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so this was the first uh, again the first film that he was not in on. Uh, cost thirty two million dollars. It was pretty well received. Uh, getting an eighty five percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, maybe a little divided in that you know the people that liked it didn't necessarily love it per se. It was a little bit more like um sort of uh curb compliments kind of <laughs> i would say it's it's a, t- it's, a, it's a bit of a tough film it's tough it is to, tough yeah it's tough to take in it's tough to i had very mixed feelings about it the first time i watched it and had to watch it again um yeah, when well, it came it, out the first time i saw it i thought it was just fine um and then subsequently i thought it got better the more times you see it it has gotten better the more times I see it that is correct yeah but you're right it is it is tough especially if you if you don't if you're not familiar with like what they're trying to do uh, in the, in the narrative. Cause we'll just come out and say it. It's supposed to be Scientology. Yeah. You know, that's yes. what it's supposed to be. Um, yeah. Not specifically, but a, you know, a, a similar narrative to say uh, people studying and, and practicing Scientology as a, as a religion. And, um, and, you know, it's, I, I think at this point people knew what Scientology was, but it wasn't like, 
you didn't have the documentaries out about it and everything. Um, so I think it, the, the message was kind of lost on people a little bit because it wasn't marketed in that way either. Like mm-hmm. it was kind of just marketed as like this quirky movie where Joaquin Phoenix is under the, the tutelage of Philip Seymour Hoffman. Interesting because, um, I hadn't looked up the trailers for any of these films really. Um, although it is something I usually like to do. I like to see sort of how they position the film before. You know, I've seen it. I usually watch them after I've seen the movie. Well, I can um, only imagine what they did for this. I don't even remember the trailer for this one, but I can only imagine. But I like, was reading when I was looking up sort of facts. I I think I was reading. I know I read a lot about Anderson wanting control over trailers, so he cut his own trailers for a couple of his movies, and I think this was one of them. So hmm. I and and this, yeah, you know, in fact, I know this one. And Inherent Vice and Phantom Thread, all three of them. He, I'm pretty sure he was in charge of. Um, really, he was in charge of the, uh, Inherent Vice's trailer. The trailer and the posters. Interesting, and, because uh, to me, Inherent Vice, uh, the trailer made it. And oh god, we're going too far ahead. But the the trailer made it seem like almost a Coen Brothers film, and then you watch the movie, and that is not what that is. <laughs> well. Uh, yeah, so I don't know. I can't attest to that because, like I said, I haven't actually watched the trailers myself. But I did read that he was in charge of the trailers for those, his last three movies and that he specifically used a lot of unseen footage, a lot of footage that wasn't in the films. So for uh, – um, I mean that's pretty normal though, especially nowadays. Like you'll find that all the time where shots aren't, aren't in the movie at all. Yeah, but I I feel like I feel like when it happens it it does it's not an intentional thing. Whereas I feel like with Paul Thomas Anderson, I just get the feeling that that was maybe more of an intentional thing. He was I feel like he was more trying to like save stuff, you know? Like I feel like PTA is a guy that doesn't want to ruin anything, and so I feel like by cutting his own trailers and by using a lot of footage that maybe isn't even necessarily in the film, he can yeah, get across. Yeah, and I could see that with the master trailer because it, it doesn't really tell you a whole lot. But uh, and same with Phantom Thread actually too. And Phantom Thread actually gives you more of a sense of what the movie's about without giving away the central uh, issue in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas Inherent Vice is, is like that feels like a studio trailer to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have to go back and watch them again or watch them for the first time and you know sort of pick apart. Now that I now that I have the information that, you know, or at least I'm pretty sure, you know, I, I, I didn't write it down because I didn't find it to be all that interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I, I definitely was reading it and I'll, I'll back that up and I'll I'll do more research on it and see if I can find out uh, some corroborating uh, testimony to that. But anyway, uh, the master, regardless of its uh, how it was marketed, uh, did not make its money back, uh, made twenty eight no. twenty eight million dollars. Uh, with on the thirty-two million dollar budget, so and these are all worldwide numbers, by the way. All the box office numbers are worldwide. So I added in that to sort of bump up his numbers a little bit. It brings his grand total uh, to two hundred and twenty million dollars. Uh, this, this is his fifth uh, highest-grossing film. Uh, so a bit of a disappointment there. Uh, here's the letterbox summary: uh, Freddie, a volatile, heavy-drinking veteran who suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder finds some semblance of a family when he stumbles onto the ship of Lancaster Dodd, the charismatic leader of a new religion he forms after World War II, that religion being pretty much Scientology. 
<clears throat> they call it the cause or something, I believe, right? Yes, yes. Uh, that's that's a, a better description of than what they have on IMDb. The, the only difference is in IMDb's description, they do mention the cause in there. So that's... Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. And like you said, they, they never specifically say that it's Scientology. No, but because they would be sued if they did that. <laughs> yeah, but apparently it's widely known and accepted that it is. Oh, and yeah. so that actually brings up a little bit of interesting trivia here. So uh, Scientology directly relates to... Magnolia's uh, oh. co-star Tom Cruise. You know that's how Tom true. Uh, so apparently he's seen the film, and he has his issues with the film, um, but he didn't. He never publicly, uh, never publicly dissed the film or anything like that. And uh, according to Paul Thomas Anderson, they're still friends, even though Cruise has some criticisms of the movie, and they. No chose to keep them private they said that you know their conversations will be between them so i hope so i want them to get back together yeah uh so even though you know and i i wouldn't say that the master is like a scathing you know uh portrayal of scientology um, no but if you're really paying attention it it yeah you know it it's it's stupid <laughs> yeah 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 i like uh when, you know, they they constantly say, like, you're making this up, you know, like, yeah. they're just constantly, you know, uh, accusing the cult like leader. When, when he's going back and forth across the room for no reason. Yeah, that was the scene that really stuck out to me the first time I saw it was that scene. And I had this weird <laughs> theory that the whole film, because, like, when watching Paul Thomas Anderson, I... Uh, at this point, I had seen – I think I had caught up and I had watched all his other ones and I was sort of like, yes, this guy, he's very deep. You know, He has like these deep themes and this, you know, these things and his movies really – I felt like they meant something. And so when watching The Master, I was just trying to find like the meaning. You know, I was, I was probably being like too uh, – I don't want to say analytical but too you – know, I was trying to dive too deep into it instead of just experiencing it. And I feel like I came out of there thinking – this whole movie was bullshit. Not that I hated it, not that I hated it, but that it means nothing just like this whole cult thing, uh, like tries to get you to look for answers. No, in- that was the next movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, that was sort of my initial sort of reading of the film. And then watching it again, I'm like, okay, I sort of noticed more of like the, the sort of critiques of, of, uh, uh, of this religion or whatever. And I started this sort of less thinking about that, but that was sort of how I, uh, how I thought about the film for a couple of months. Yeah. As I I, on it. This is all just a giant metaphor for how cults work, you know, like I, we're in the cult of, of PTA. We all joined the cult and we all thought there was meaning and there was nothing. And this film is about nothing. <laughs> I'm pretty sure before I even saw it, I knew what, the 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 meanings were because I, I remember reading stuff online about how it related to Scientology and everything. So I went in knowing that, and I guess that's kind of a, a slight advantage mm-hmm. um, to to figuring everything out. And uh, yeah, you know, it's it's like I said, it's not over, it's not blatant, but it's enough to where you can kind of tell what's going on. And I think one of the people's criticism uh, of the movie are the beginning is kind of meandering a bit. Like you have him, he's a, he's, he's a photographer at first and he's, Mm -hmm. you know, 
he for some reason he's uh he's into making mixtures of booze and uh you know that's, that's what you want to call it <laughs> i mean he drinks it doesn't he <laughs> and uh he, more like poison sure um and and then like the the next 10 to 15 minutes are just him lying around places and it, it's not until he actually meets philip Zimmer hoffman that the plot actually gets going and i can kind of see that um turning people away and then by the end there's not like a clear wrap up of everything. And I think that would actually, that's another reason why people might not like it is because it didn't give a, what some people would consider a satisfying conclusion. It is not a satisfying movie at all in any, in any sense of the word, unless you're thinking maybe just like visually satisfying. I don't think it's meant to be. I I don't think it is either. No. And that's fine. Not every movie has to, has to sort of fit into that formula. And I kind of like that. It sort of stands apart from that. It makes you think differently. You know, it made me think about metaphors and, you know, it may, you know, it makes me think about something else other than like just putting it right in your face and saying, this is what this movie is about. This is what this happens in this movie and, you know, mm-hmm. leave the theater and then forget about it in five minutes. You know, this is a movie where, you know, I think of often, I think, you know, I think, I think of the master probably more than I think of any of the other films, even though it's not my favorite film. I think it's his most sort of challenging film. Mm-hmm. Or I think inherent vice is challenging in a different way. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, mentally challenging. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah. So there's some funny. There's some fun trivia for this one. So um, I already said the Tom Cruise thing here, but uh, apparently they did not have permission to break that toilet in the jail cell scene. Oh, where Joaquin Phoenix freaks out and they, you know, he gets locked in that cell and he's next to mm-hmm. uh, Hoffman's character and he. Does that I love when he like bangs his head against the the bunk beds and the bunk beds are flying all over the place and then he just turns around and he kicks the toilet and it kind of shatters and he kicks it I think he kicks it like a couple times uh, and just totally smashes this jailhouse toilet to to bits. Apparently they were filming in some historic building oh. and he was they did not have permission to do that but Phoenix was told to improvise his freakout. Oh jeez! And he said he said that he didn't think that it was possible to break the toilet. So he thought he was just going <laughs> to kick it. <laughs> and when he kicked it and it broke, I, I mean like when you watch it, I, cause I went back and rewatched it just to try to see if I could catch like a glimmer of like, Oh shit on his face after he breaks it. He's a great actor then if he was not intended to break that toilet. Cause he looks like he is trying to intentionally smash that toilet to bits. So uh, uh, that reminds me of, uh, in the hateful eight when, uh, Kurt Russell breaks the guitar that uh that uh, daisy is uh, uh playing and which apparently was a again a historical um yeah guitar from yeah. Uh, a, a museum from back in the 1800s and <laughs> yeah. he, I, I don't know if he knew it was if, if it was real or if he thought it was a prop i don't no one actually knows why <laughs> but he just picked up the guitar and smashed it and the reaction of jennifer jason lee is a real reaction where she's like whoa 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 what are you doing whoa <laughs> and it's 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 in the movie and yeah that, you know they only had the one take so um, i really like that i really I, I like stories of that like that where you know like a happy accident sort of story yeah uh, they had to pay for it though i think it uh <laughs> it cost like 50 grand or something jesus yeah when we do uh tarantino's episode we'll have to uh talk about how that influence impacted the budget of hateful eight could have been 50 grand less the cast impacted the budget (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, so, uh, yeah, so that's, I thought that was kind of fun. Um, apparently the toilet had historical significance. So I don't know in terms of, uh, yeah, many criminal shit in this toilet. (laughs) I don't know if they had, you know, what kind of trouble they got financially, uh, for that. Um, but yeah, so, uh, another funny little bit. And, um, this is, uh, this is amazing. Like, I can't believe I didn't know about this before in order to help Joaquin Phoenix keep the side of his mouth clenched as he spoke. Uh, he actually had a dentist attach metal plates with rubber bands to the inside of his Whoa, mouth. Oh, that's, that's, ooh, yeah, that's right? not good. <laughs> Crazy, right? Now, yeah. apparently the, the rubber bands weren't strong enough to hold his jaw in the position he wanted it to be in. So he got rid of the rubber bands, but the metal plates cut up his mouth enough that it was kind of like a uh, constant reminder. Yeah. And, <laughs> and that's why he, you know, he was always thinking about it because the metal plates were cutting up his cheek. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah, crazy. I when when I was watching the movie, I you know obviously was paying attention to that the way he was speaking and the way he was holding his mouth, and I wasn't exactly sure why. Um, it kind of seemed like an odd choice for me. I like a it could like just I be a quirk, it, you know. Yeah, it was just kind of like a, I just thought it was a quirk thing, and you know that on top of the cleft lip that he already has, just kind of really added a lot of interesting tidbits to the character. Um, but yeah, I thought that was, that was some method acting. That was some, that's some crazy shit right there. Not to the level of, uh, removing your teeth like Shia LaBeouf did for that one movie, but you know, it's still oh, crazy. I didn't hear about that. Yeah. Uh, what, what movie was it? Was that the tank movie? I think, uh, he, he, he removed some of his teeth to make it more oh, realistic. Yeah. Fury? Yeah. Yeah. The, oh, I love Fury. The, the, the David Ayers movie. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that one a lot. Uh, yeah, he, he just, he removed some of his teeth and now he just has implants cause he did that. It's like, you idiot. <laughs> it, it brought nothing to your character and now you just are missing teeth. I really like that Shia LaBeouf is doing things like that. <laughs> he's insane. Yeah. He's crazy. I want him to be in a PTA movie. Yeah. Oh, we'll get to that later. That's a good one. Um, but anyway, uh, so, and then the last little bit, uh, that I have, uh, which is also interesting. Apparently Jeremy Renner was originally supposed to play Freddy. Oh yeah. I did hear about that. Which I think would have sucked. So <laughs> no, I think the movie probably would have been very different. It would have been different and it would have been, I don't know. If I can't it would've say been, it would have been worse. I just, I'm just going to say, I can't say it would have been like any worse, but it definitely wouldn't have been as it interesting. Uh, I mean, he can do interesting things. It's just, it would have been a very different character. I don't know. I don't know if it would have worked with everything. I can't buy Jeremy Renner as this impressionable alcoholic slug of a man (laughs) who is uh, diving in deep with this cult. To me, he, he feels maybe a little too cool for that. I'm trying to picture him in the processing scenes. Um, the scenes where they have to keep their eyes open and answer yeah. all the questions or whatever, uh, I which I know. think is, I thought that that was super interesting, um, and I think that that does pull from some stuff that's in Scientology. I think there is uh, where they, you know, where they think they can like travel back in time <laughs> or all their lives are connected or something like that. And I, I just found that really interesting. That whole the the processing process or you know whatever you want to call it, uh, mm-hmm. where he would you know, have him keep his eyes open and not blink and answer questions, you know, some of them mundane, some of them personal and how sort of hard that would be to do. And 
I remember I was actually trying to this time when I was rewatching it, I was trying to keep my eyes open the whole time he was keeping oh, his Jesus. eyes open. And I was like, I'm not even answering like personal questions that I want to blink right now. Not easy. Uh, no, it's not easy. I think that I think that could be like legit used in like an interrogation tactic or something, you know, like that. That really you can't you have no time to to think about lying. Or you could just, you know, wire them open and show violence and other horrible things and, and try to uh, rehabilitate them. <laughs> you could do that. <clears throat> All right. So uh, personal rankings. Uh, mm -hmm. This actually is um, six for me. Yeah. Same here. Six. It's I feel like. Um, I, I didn't readjust. I rewatched all the films, uh, in the last like month or so. Mm -hmm. Um, with the exception actually of Phantom Thread, which is funny because that's the most recent one, but I, I figured I seen that one recently enough. Um, and so, uh, I think I might end up moving the master above heart eight, possibly the more I watch the master. Um, but for right now it's sitting, sitting right behind heart eight. Yeah, I have it above Heart Eight as well. Um, it's it, it's it's good, but it's it's there is some. It, it's not. I don't know what it is. It's like you can definitely see some PTA in there, and there is some really good performances. But um, there are times where it, it kind of does get muddled by the whole Scientology, uh, you know, uh, storyline, and then it kind of, especially when. Um, when the, the the police are getting involved, it kind of just goes around in circles a little bit. But uh, mm -hmm. but no, I it's again being six on on the list is not a bad thing. Yeah, this is a this is a quality list to be on. <laughs> um, I really like uh, the scenes where he's doing the photography, the mm -hmm. family portraits and stuff. I don't know something about those scenes just appeals to me. Um, I like. When he's like the when he's like drunk or whatever, and he's moving that light closer to that guy's face, and you're just like, how long is this guy gonna put up with this until he freaks out? And then he eventually does, and yeah, yeah. it's great. Yeah, um, there, there are so, yeah. there are some comedic parts of the movie. It's it's yeah. it's not all dreary and depressing. It's devoid of joy in the sense that like it's lunacy at it's at points. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's not, there's nothing fun about the movie though. Like no. pretty much like, the, like, uh, the, I guess there, there's nothing really fun about there will be blood either, but that just, that has a different sort of tone to it. Oh, very much. I feel like the master, I don't want to say it would be like greatly improved by some, some levity, you know, some lightening up of the subject matter, but it possibly could have, I think. Uh, I don't know, maybe an additional character that is a little quirky and funny or, or something like that. Um, yeah, it's tough. It's yeah, yeah. You know, I don't, I don't know if it would gel well with some of the others, you know, it's like, I think you almost kind of go, got to go one way or the other with this one. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know if you could have a scene where you're like cracking up and then go right to the scene where she's jerking Philip Seymour Hoffman <laughs> off under the, you know, the bathroom sink. Sink. yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you think about that one all the time. That is a horrifying scene to me. I don't know why, but it is so weird. Yeah. <laughs> just the the way her just she's just so casual about it and her expression never changes and it's just weird. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Nothing to say there. No, not really. <laughs> All right. So moving on now. Uh, so yeah. So good film. Uh, lower on the or higher on the ranking um, than some might have it. Just I I feel like this is one that you either like really really love or you're maybe not so sold on. And I think I'm kind of in between those. You know, mm-hmm. I think it's a really good. I th- and I think I think I the more I watch it, the more I'll like it. One of those kind of films. Yeah. But another one, I feel like you probably have to be in the mood to watch, too, you know? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, so moving on to his seventh uh, feature film uh, in 2014, two years after The Mastery, comes out with Inherent Vice. This is the second one, uh, second film adapted from a novel, this time by, this time by a man named Thomas P- um, Pinchon. Pinchon? Pinchon, uh, I think. Pynchon? Okay, that's good. Thomas Pynchon. Uh, this one, uh, again, stars Joaquin Phoenix, uh, so coming back again. Uh, also, Josh Brolin, and IMDb has Owen Wilson as starring, but I don't really feel like that's totally accurate. Yeah, kind of. Uh, the rest of the notable cast members include uh, Reese Witherspoon uh, making her first appearance, uh, Martin Short, uh, which great, great role. That's one of the shining moments of the film. Uh, Maya Rudolph, who is actually PTA's wife. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if you knew that. Yeah, I knew that. Jillian uh, Bell comes back uh, for her second appearance. It's just a small, small role. Uh, Michael Kenneth Williams from Boardwalk Empire. Um, Catherine Waterston um, from Fantastic Beasts. And um, Benicio Del Toro yes. making his appearance. Yes. And so for a, for a scene. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so uh, Robert Ellswit comes back uh, to shoot this one. This is now his sixth film, only missed out on the master. And uh, this one was given $20 million, so a little bit of a decrease in budget here. Um, it is his lowest rating rated film uh, at 73%. Still, still fresh. Never put out a rotten rotten film uh and this one also did not make its money back so now two in a row where pta has not made its money back this one pulls in 14 million on the 10 on the 20 million budget bringing his total to 235 million this is his lowest uh grossing film since hard eight yeah but i can see why this is not a very accessible movie to a lot of people no and so uh Here's the letterbox summary. In Los Angeles, at the turn of the 1970s, drug-fueled detective Larry Doc Sportello investigates the disappearance of an ex-girlfriend. And uh, what, are your, what are your feelings on Inherent Vice, uh, Sean? <laughs> I feel like I know. I, I do not like this movie. Okay. I, I remember seeing it uh, in theaters, and I walked out, and I went, wow, they should have called that Incoherent Vice. Oh, hey-o! Uh, I thought that it was just all over the place. Apparently from what I hear, the book is like that too, where I, I, I heard that the book is even harder to follow than the movie. Um, Pin Chan is apparently uh, like unadaptable. That's like what people are like. People have, nobody's adapted his books into, even though they're pot, pretty popular novels into films because they're just, they're, they're not cinematic in that way. You know, they as are far as of, I know, this is the only book that they've even tried to, that's adapt. correct. Um, That's correct. Anderson has supposedly toiled around with a couple of his other books, but never, mm-hmm. never got them into shape for, uh, for shooting. Um, I, it kind of just meanders around, and then 
you don't they just introduce characters and you don't really quite know who they are and then they just never show up again for example benicio del toro and uh and uh the the whole investigation that he's doing tends it ends up leading to something that he wasn't even looking into in the first place and um and then it ends in like a shootout and and then owen wilson just disappears for a while and yeah i feel like there was more to his part i think like i feel like there's something missing from the owen wilson story uh that just i don't know because like they they go to they go to like the house where all these these people are staying and then he finds (laughs) I i forget who he's even looking for there because it's not it's not the 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 girlfriend it's someone else and um i can't i I could hardly even keep track (laughs) yeah and like and then by the end of the movie it's like everything's fine and dandy and then josh brolin eats all his pot (laughs) (laughs) you know and then that's that's like the only the one thing that i do enjoy about the movie is josh brolin because josh brolin's just good in everything and uh and he's i think he understands how absurd this movie is Mm-hmm. And he's playing it as, in 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 the same way as absurd as as it should be. Like when he's yelling for more pancakes at the at the restaurant, yeah, and <laughs> just bar- barging in and, and eating all all the pot and yeah, that scene is the one of the weirdest scenes to me because I don't get like, did that actually happen? I don't think so. I'm, no. Yeah. Yeah, it's a weird scene to me. Because I think um, I think part of it get uh, gets gets away with it because um, he's supposed to be uh, on drugs for a yeah. lot of the movie, and I think that's what the represent representation is, is that we're kind of in his shoes because it's like this mm-hmm. doesn't really make sense, and we're kind of on this like stupor with him. But it's the only instance in the film where you think well, you don't trust the reality, you know. Yeah, that's true. I mean, some like, of the he's on he's on some of the stuff is wacky yeah. and out there, but nothing feels like nothing else feels like. Wait, is this actually happening? Mm-hmm. Except maybe like when the girl kind of comes back, but then that's only initially, and then like, and then pretty pretty soon you realize that okay, that's actually happening. She's there. So I don't know. Like it's almost kind of like I mean, we'll talk about Phantom Thread next, but it's almost kind of like that one scene in Phantom Thread where it just doesn't fit in with the rest of the movie, you know. Oh, the, the the ghost, the ghost scene, yeah. yeah. So it's it's just kind of like I mean I like the scene and the fact that like it elicits an emotion from me. That being like, what the hell is going on? You know, like kind of confusion. <laughs> um, and it but, comes at the at like near the end of the movie after you've already gone through all this weird and nonsensical plot, and yeah. you get to the end and you're just like, oh, I guess this is how we're wrapping it up. Yeah, I, I, I actually, I'm very intrigued when you said that the trailer made it seem like a Coen Brothers film. It did. It, it was. It, it made it seem more comedic. It made yeah. it seem like a like a, a cross between like a Coen's crime movie and say like The Big Lebowski. And um, it even had I forget what the music was in the trailer, but they even had some sort of like popular music in there too. Hmm. It, it definitely... I kind of think I'd like to see that version of this movie, you know? <laughs> yeah. I think also part of, I, I don't know why I, 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 let me look this up because I remember seeing the movie and thinking, Oh, um, uh, that's interesting. He decided to shoot in 16 millimeter. 
uh, because mm-hmm. it was so grainy, and especially in some of the scenes where it was dark and the grain was just overpowering. And I'm I like, I can't really see anything that's going on in this movie, thinking well, that, he... they, that they shot it in 16. Mm-hmm. And then I end up going back and, and, and looking, and it was actually in 35. So now I'm starting to wonder, was the projector bad that I saw it on? or Well, apparently he modeled the film look after film that he kept in like a garage or something for like years and then he busted it out and they didn't want to use that actual film because they didn't trust it mm-hmm. but they wanted to like recreate that look of sort of like the... it's, but it's not the whole movie though it's just some scenes that are darker it, it it is especially when he's returning home in the in the one scene and it's like the sun is setting and i think he runs into the girlfriend mm-hmm. um you can't see a goddamn thing that's in there. <laughs> uh, yeah. So did you see this one in theaters as well? Yes, I did. I, I'm assuming. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I did not. I had, I caught this one on, uh, when it came out. I was, and, I was uh, excited to see this one because, you know, I, I, it seemed like it was, uh, he was returning back to his, his roots, uh, a, a little bit. Like mm-hmm. he had the, the big cast and, it, you know, there was a, a mystery going on and, you know, Joaquin mm-hmm. Phoenix was good in the last one. And, not that he's mm-hmm. bad in this, but it's just like, it's yeah, he's good. All over I mean, the all the characters are pretty good. It's it's mainly the story that I have a problem. Well, with Well, I don't know. I don't think Owen Wilson was very good in it. <laughs> well, I th- his role was so small. I mean, in the terms of like, he didn't really get a ton of screen time yeah, or got, like things mm-hmm. to do other than like, you know. I don't know. There's some people like I completely forgot Reese Witherspoon was even in the movie until you mentioned it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I I like. I I love Josh Brolin's performance and I like Joaquin Phoenix's performance. So I think the the two main main people uh really put this in another level in terms of, you know, actual acting performances. But I think yeah, my main problem with it is simply the the plot is just too convoluted, too all over the place, too scatterbrained. And uh when I first watched it, I was like, man, they're doing all these drugs, like you know, it's like a drug sort of themed movie i'm like maybe you got to be on drugs to like this movie i don't know <laughs> i i've heard that and people uh not that i would know but i've heard that people who uh who tried that also got a, a similar experience of just confusion out of it yes i can attest to that as well <laughs> but yeah so this is my uh oh oh i have bits of trivia here uh so the author of this novel uh Thomas Pinchon is an infamous recluse and he's actually not been publicly photographed for like over 50 years. Oh, kind of like but, uh, Alan Moore. Yes. But apparently according to Josh Brolin, he makes a cameo in the film, an uncredited unidentified cameo. He's in the film somewhere, according to Josh Brolin. Now, no one's ever necessarily confirmed this. Well, he's got no, he's like, got he's got to be old then because uh, he he is he is older. He's like I believe he's it says here he's eighty one years old right now. So yeah, somebody somebody when I was researching, I was trying to find it. Somebody said it's either and then named like four different like you know small background characters that he could be. You know, they say it's like one of these four, but it's, I guess it's really hard to tell what he looks like now because he hasn't been photographed. So nobody really truly knows what he looks like. So I guess they're just looking at any unidentified old man in the film. <laughs> uh, 
so yeah, so and he he said it more than one occasion too. So I don't know if it's a real thing. No one else said anything about that besides Josh Brolin. So I don't know. But thought that was an interesting tidbit. And also, is that what he's supposed to look like? You just sent me. I think uh, I don't know how recent that is, but that's. Um... Apparent. I don't know if that's a if that's a recent photo or not. I have no idea. But that, or it could be a recreation or something, or one of those aged things. But that's supposedly what he should look like. Oh, what an interesting looking fella! Yeah, you know what? He kind of reminds me of Joaquin Phoenix a little bit. <laughs> I was just gonna say. I feel like I could. I feel like if that's what he actually looked like, I could find him in the movie if I tried long enough. <laughs> um, the other uh, interesting bit of trivia is so. Uh, like what we were just saying, uh, this whole not I wouldn't say the theme of this film, but you know, uh, a large part of this film is the sort of drug culture. And uh, the Alamo Draft House in Denver, Colorado, actually organized a uh, marijuana bus trip to go see the premiere of this movie oh. uh, that Anderson attended. He was on the bus, but apparently he did not partake in the marijuana. But uh, yeah, but so. The Alamo Draft House got a bunch of people stoned to go see this movie, which I think is pretty funny. I, I have an inter- interesting piece of trivia that I don't know if you have in your notes or not. But uh, uh, originally, the uh, Joaquin Phoenix uh, lead lead role was going to be Robert Downey Jr. And I found that, but then I also found an article where June, Robert Downey Jr. denied that. So I didn't well, it. very early on, he was. Um, this was before they even knew what the movie was. They, 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 I don't think they even knew it was based on the book. I think okay. that they just knew that Paul Thomas Anderson was making a movie about a uh, detective and uh, that Robert Downey Jr. was involved. So yeah, um, yeah. I, uh, I when I first heard saw that, I was like, damn, I want to see Paul Thomas Anderson do something with Robert Downey Jr. And I was like, that's awesome. Well, but I'm glad I, it wasn't this movie because yeah. <laughs> I don't know if he would have uh, fit well in, in, in this one, but uh, I don't, I don't think that any, anyone could save this film. I don't think it's a, a yeah, it definitely wasn't a, an issue with the, with the cast. No, it's not like uh, other than Owen Wilson. I can't say there was any bad performances. No. Yeah. I, uh, I was very surprised watching it the second time realizing that um what's her name is the lead character for fantastic beast now (laughs) and she's in this movie like in a pretty provocative scene where she's fully naked and just like chilling for a while she's on screen naked for like a solid five minutes and then you know that sex scene and i'm like wow (laughs) i'm surprised that uh fantastic beasts uh people weren't weary about having their sort of franchise star. Yeah. And the lead character in that movie played a tranny in uh, the, the Danish girl and was, yeah, but that's a risk. I mean, not that this wasn't respectable, but I think eh. this was like, this was pretty, she's chilling there fully nude for like a, a long time. Yeah. And Eddie Redbane tucks his junk in the movie. So, you know, <laughs> Oh, yeah. So Fantastic Beasts. That's quite a naughty film, huh? Uh, All right. So um, I have this ranked last. Last. Yep, definitely. Yeah. And uh, it's not really even all that close. This is pretty clearly uh, his worst film. Again, 
it's not the worst film ever. <laughs> I'd no, say, no. Uh, I'd, say it's, uh, I'd say it's overall. I'd say it's a it's a bad film that just barely misses the mark on being you know, good. or it's an okay film that misses the mark on being good. Just maybe some editing could have done, you know, it's, some cleaning up of the story. Some of it is, 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 uh, lifted up by, by the acting, but, um, it's, it's at best average. And, you know, if you, if, it's not the worst thing ever. If you want to compare it to like actual bad movies, like, yeah, let's talk mile 22 for a second. <laughs> One of the worst I, things I've ever seen. I'd um, rather not, <laughs> uh, you know, if you want to compare to that, you know, th- that that makes this like Citizen Kane compared. <laughs> there, and there were some uh, some funny moments, too. I think it had a couple laugh out moments where I actually laughed a lot. But I think I was just you just couldn't follow along no. in a cohesive way where that where the, the laughs or anything added to any sort of feelings about the story that were happening. It was just sort of like, oh, that's kind of funny. Like, that's a little quirky. Like, oh, that was a good scene, but I don't really get what it means, you know, like that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so moving on to our last film here today, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's most recent film, Phantom Thread, released uh, last year, 2017. Uh, again, written by Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, this time starring newcomers, uh, newcomer Vicky Kripes and Leslie Manville. Also, Daniel Day-Lewis makes his second uh, appearance in a Paul Thomas Anderson film. Uh, no other cast members were notable. Um, this one's interesting for cinematographer. So I'm not sure if you've read up on this or know this, but he actually sort of acted as his own cinematographer for this yes, film. Yes, I did know that. Apparently uh, there was some uh, scuttlebutt about whether or not uh, he was actually DPing his own movie because I think he used a fake name on it and... Um, there was there was a controversy it's like is he or is he not doing this uh kind of like how last year with uh uh logan lucky is that what it was called logan lucky uh whether or not that was um uh written written by uh soderbergh's wife um Mm. who was using a fake name on the movie Mm. um and then there's another new conspiracy about uh, the, the the remake of Suspiria that's coming out, where it's whether or not Tilda Swinton is playing this old man in makeup, uh, who Ooh. they created out of uh, thin air, and this is his first movie credit, and they won't say that it is him or is her, mm-hmm. even though it probably is her. Um, just you know, fun little things like that. I like that. That's fun. Um, this one is a little weirder to me because it basically says like. No, I'm not the cinematographer. There is no cinematographer. It was te- <laughs> it was a team effort between me, my camera operators, and my gaffers. Now, to me, if you're the person in charge, you're taking advice from your camera operators and your gaffers, and you're using that to light the scene. You're the fucking cinematographer. <laughs> like, yeah, just own up to it. What a cinematographer does. But you know what? Soderbergh does the same thing. He uses a fake name when he cinema, he when he DPs his own movies too. That's so. fine. It's a fake name. He's he didn't he didn't give a cinematographer credit. No, is what happened? No, like there's no credited cinematographer. Use a fake name. I don't care. Do whatever you want. Why not just make it yourself? What is the shame? I don't see the problem in that. Why? Why? Like, why is he avoiding calling himself the cinematographer of this film? Who cares? Yeah, and he, they probably missed out on a cinematography Oscar nomination because there was no credit. <laughs> yeah, right. I yeah, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, 
weird just being like humble also like, I annoyingly humble for no reason it won the oscar for costume design and uh that's funny because uh daniel day lewis I, I was reading actually uh designed a lot of the costumes in the movie uh because mm. you know as he does he becomes the role that he he takes on so he started doing some costume designing and um and he's not credited as a costume designer in, in fact uh the guy that was credited his name is mark bridges and he accepted the Oscar, even though it should have probably went to Daniel Day-Lewis, because from what I've read, he did a lot of the work with the costume designing in the movie. Did he do? I, I, I did read I did read something about him learning how to sew and do it and like helping. Uh, he like studied under some famous uh, costume designer for like a month. He like apprenticed with him or something. I didn't hear that he I didn't necessarily get into it too much to read that he uh he did all the costumes for this film or, yeah. you know, a, a large portion of the costumes. Apparently uh, he, he did some kind of work on the costumes enough to where people were, at least me was questioning, should he be nominated for it? <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. I don't know. I, like, yeah, he does do, you know, goes all in. He's one of those all in kind of guys. He Apparently was, he was an all in. <laughs> he was that all in. Apparently, no one's going to get that, Sean. He, uh, stays in character the whole time he's shooting. Mm -hmm. So um, I think it was uh, uh, Vicky Kripes didn't meet him until like she got to set. So she didn't know Daniel Day-Lewis. She only knew uh, whatever the character's name was, uh, Woodcock, something Woodcock. <laughs> Reynolds or Woodcock. Reynolds, yeah. So she like literally was like, I didn't even meet Daniel Day Lewis until after we wrapped. Like, I, he would not yeah. talk to me as Daniel Day Lewis. He like legit stays in character. Did, and did you know there's a prequel to this movie called Mister Woodcock? <laughs> I can't believe they recast uh, the uh, Billy Bob Thornton. I know Billy Bob Thornton. Yeah, it's so crazy. And there, Sean William Scott was nowhere to be found. How dare they recast Billy Bob Thornton? I know. Uh, but yeah, and apparently he hung out with Leslie Manville like before shooting. That way they could like become more acquainted and sort of mm -hmm. get on a get a better connection before they started filming. Which I thought was pretty funny. They uh, they didn't let her uh, Vicky Kripes in on their little hangout sesh. Hmm. Uh, so I don't believe I finished this. So the budget for this one was thirty five. So a little bump back up in budget, which is funny because he hasn't made his money back with the last two films. Um, very well reviewed at 91%, uh, tied for second and, uh, brings in $47 million, uh, his third highest grossing film, uh, finally makes his money back. Uh, I wonder how much of that was based off of people going because it was promoted as Daniel Day-Lewis's last movie. Yes. That's another thing. Yeah. So apparently this is Daniel, this was going to, is going to be Daniel Day-Lewis's last film. As, as of right now. Yes. Yeah. He's, he's I mean, done this before where he said he was quitting, but you know, did he, did he, I, yeah, at least, at least one, one time before I, I think it may have even been twice, but yeah, this is not the first time he's, he's done this. Well, this was his first film since Lincoln, right? Yeah. Which apparently that took a, a, a toll on him because he had, he got like pneumonia and everything because he was living in log cabins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I think, this movie is definitely doesn't have a story that seems to have mainstream appeal. Like it's not like people are like, Oh yes, I want to see that story about that dressmaker, you know? Like, well, it's kind of an anti-romantic comedy in a way. 
what's really funny, so my professor um, seen this and came into class and literally said that it was his favorite film ev- like in the last 10 years or something like that, uh, with the exception of Carol. Uh, oh, I, that movie. So he, <laughs> so he really he really set it up as like that this was going to be amazing. And I said and he said that I remember him saying that it was very romantic. And then when I saw it, I'm <laughs> in a, thinking in a way, thinking, what like what is my professor's idea of romance? Like, how is this romantic at all? It was the opposite of romance. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so then when I questioned him about that, he said that romantic was not the word he should have used. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's pretty funny. So I went into it with definitely different, I mean, like from what I had understood about the movie, I knew it was like kind of a, you know, a demanding, harsh, crass, sort of uncaring man. So I was like, well, maybe like, you know, the story is that his heart softens and he finds, you know, value in love and you know whatever (laughs) and compassion and that's what i'm thinking is going to happen the whole time and then it ends and i'm like he's still a dick (laughs) yeah i mean really there there's not a ton of character changes by the end of the movie you just kind of understand more of what they're looking for if that makes sense that's a good. I like that. That's a good way of putting it. Nobody really changes, but you sort of understand why like, they. Because you all... don't exactly know how. Um, what's her name? Um, Alma. You don't exactly know all that much about her. You learn more as you go along. So, she was probably the same from the beginning as she ended up being at the end, and she just had more power and control by the end. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. So. Yeah, for sure. Because she, she always seemed very strong-willed. You know, like she wasn't really putting up with any of the shit right from the beginning. Yeah. But it was, it, it, the situations didn't necessarily arise where she needed to assert herself until later on in the film. Mm-hmm. So it's not like she gains her confidence throughout the film. She's pretty much always had it, you know, Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> right from the get go. I like the idea of someone like not married, taking on like a woman and having like a second, almost like a wife woman around to like, take care of the other woman though <laughs> i think that was pretty funny you know like she's like should i ask her to leave you know like should i she's like managing his women yeah yeah it's 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 definitely it's not something new that has been done before but it's it's played well in the in the the movie um i don't know if you have any more trivia or if we can just go into it um but uh, uh the cinematographer uh daniel day lewis's last film and the um Daniel Day-Lewis helping on set uh, with the costumes were my only ones. Okay. Uh, this is an interesting one because I feel like um, this is this is a kind of a different Daniel Day-Lewis where he is very subdued mm-hmm. to the point where it's almost like he, he's, he's subdued to the point where you think that he's going to lose it, but he never does. Mm-hmm. And um, the one instance where he even kind of does is not even the best day of Daniel Plainview. <laughs> uh yeah you know it's 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 so interesting the fact that like he is he's playing this at a such a low level whereas it's kind of elevating uh the alma character um into being all not so much the antagonist but she becomes very much an antagonist by the end of the movie mm. and um you know it's the, it's such a weird relationship between the two of them because yeah you're right it's like 
he doesn't really have relationships in the movie. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like he has women and he's using them as part of his his uh, his clothing. Uh, um, uh, his muses. He has muses. Sure. Let's 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 go with that. Um, and it's, and he almost even picks them out like kind of by their body type too. Like, well, he measures her on their first date. Yeah, yeah. And then then she sits down and she the uh, I forget the uh, Leslie Manville's character, but she the sister. Let's we'll just call her the, the sister. Yeah. Um. She wait. That was his sister. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. Why? Why would? You, what did you think she was? Just a woman. No, that was lady. that was his sister. I, I must have totally missed that. Mm-hmm. Oh wow. Okay. That kind of changes things. Because like me. she's she's in charge of um, definitely the sure. business oh, side sure of it. That. Oh yeah, definitely. She she's in charge of the business uh, uh, stuff, and then he's just in charge of like the creativity. Because um, I always thought I was reading into like sexual tension between them and everything. Oh my god, I feel like a <laughs> no no zero no zero. Yeah, see, it says it right here in the in the uh, IMDb. It says uh, renowned dressmaker Reynolds Woodcock and his sister Cyril. Oh wow! Yeah, I see, don't know how I missed that. I must not have been paying attention. Wow, that's that's a that's a game changer for me. I need to rewatch it now. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking the whole time, like, is she jealous of the other women at all? Like, is there any? Does she no. want to be with him? Were they a past? Uh, I thought maybe they were. This kind of makes it less interesting in my <laughs> mind. If I'm totally honest, I thought there was like maybe some history between them. Maybe she was the first woman, and then just sort of refused to to move on from his life and turned into more of his manager, sort of thing. Or no, his, all know, all that she's uh, interested in is putting out a product and paying for the house that they live in. Ugh, that kind of actually really drags the <laughs> whole thing. I'm not even lying. Like that one little tiny misconception kind of takes away from a lot of the fun. But from the she's movie like the authoritative figure in the movie, so it's not like it's not like no, it it, de- always, it devalues her or anything. No, I don't think it. De- I just think it takes away from some of the intrigue that I was sort of. I think that you of, were uh, some of my ponderings. Listen, some of my get, some of my ponderings on get, the, uh, get your dirty thoughts out of your head, okay? I just thought it'd be interesting. Like, I, I don't know where the hell did they tell? When did they tell you that she's a sister? Jesus, how did I miss that? I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's, but it's blatant in the movie. Damn, the whole time I'm literally thinking, like, who is this lady? Like, what's her deal? Like, where'd she come from? Damn. Yeah. yeah. Well. All right. Well, now I have to readjust <laughs> my ranking. No, it's kidding. But next time I watch it, I'm definitely going to have a totally different reading on that character at least. <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess I guess he would in that case. If he's not trying to bang his sister, then what do you think this is? Star Wars? Yeah, that would make it an even weirder movie. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is it's basically the whole movie uh after once they finally meet each other is basically just a they're playing a game with each other. Mm-hmm. Um and it's they're trying to see who who can who can one up each other. And it keeps going back and forth, and you think that they're going to break up, and then they kind of do, but then they get back together. And by the end of it, you realize that there are no winners. They mm-hmm. both end up happy because he is he's content with the situation, and she likes being in in charge of him. Yeah, they're they're perfect. They're perfect for each other in like a sick kind of way. They're you know? they're both not. No well, pun intended. Yeah. They're, they're 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 both not great people. Yeah, um, I like uh, I like the 
uh, storytelling, um, the interview with the doctor, mm-hmm. sort of telling the story. Half that you know, I, I don't know if it's all the story or if it's part of the story is sort of told from her point of view, explaining things to this uh, this visiting doctor um, about her husband and his proclivities and things like that. And she basically just like admits to poisoning him, and he and he finds out. Like he kind of knows at the end, right? That's the oh no, he, yeah, he totally yeah. knows, yeah, yeah, he knows, yeah, and he just kind of he's uh, he's okay with it because yeah, which he, is he ha- he's he's so messed up that he he wants to be taken care of because he's yeah. he's been he's been uh, taken care of for most of his life, and you know that's kind of how uh, his his business is run is that he's being taken care of so that he can do his work and. Um, yeah. You know, she is taking care of him because she is purposely making him ill to do that. And it's just a vicious cycle that keeps repeating over and over again. I think he's a character that has that that uh, refuses to be vulnerable, uh, you know, to to make himself vulnerable and open up and, and you know, in that sense and feel vulnerability that way. So even though she, it does happen, he he, he, she, he does become especially in the uh, the uh, New Year's Eve scene. Uh, he's he's very vulnerable at that point. Yeah, she's psychologically messing with him, not on purpose or. or I think it is on purpose. On purpose. Uh, yeah, possibly on purpose, but like you know, she's psychologically breaking him down, mm-hmm. uh, and and sort of opening him up in that way. But he doesn't want it. He's not pleased with it. You know, he's not happy with the course of events. Uh, so her making him sick is like a a way to physically make him vulnerable and kind of puts the choice out of his hands and I think he enjoys I think he enjoys being vulnerable but he just doesn't I think there's also like a a a bit of a maternal uh aspect to it because um you know he mentions about his mother and uh I think that he kind of in a weird way kind of views her power over him as like a motherly um like he's like she's almost taking care of him as in a a motherly way Mm -hmm. um so I guess he doesn't – I'm wondering like what – I guess he doesn't get that from Cyril. Oh, uh, no, no, no. She's sister. she's all business. That's she, what I was going to say because yeah. she's more, more about protecting his business needs and not worrying about his emotional needs. No, I mean she kind of does but it's simply just so that he can work. Like when, yeah. when, when uh, she's at the breakfast table with um, – Alma and she's you know making all the noises and she's yeah. getting pissed off at her because she's just like he if he doesn't get this time yeah. in to do his work then he's going to be wrong for the rest of the day and yeah. it's just like I can't have you jeopardize that one of the, the one of the best lines in the film is when uh, she's like uh, she she leaves after interrupting her or something and she's like I'm I'm leaving with the, he's like, and he says like the T is leaving. The interruption is staying with me or something like that. I just, mm-hmm. I always like, I like that line. Yeah. Yeah. It, he, there, there's some good dialogue in there too. Uh, you know, again, they're playing a game with each other. Did you think, uh, did you think he was ever going to crash the car when watching those um, scenes? I thought that I, for some reason, I just thought that was coming. No, not really. Um, I also, I also knew that the movie wasn't over yet, so <laughs> that'd be a, a very uh, quick ending. Well, I didn't, well, I didn't mean to cra- crash it and die. Oh, okay. Like, well, <laughs> well but, he does it multiple times. He drives very fast multiple times throughout the film. And I just figured, I, f- I just figured he was driving angry. <laughs> every time he came up, I'm like, he's driving too fast. Something's going to happen. No, I don't feel like that's a PTA thing to do. 
He whips that thing. Yeah, he doesn't really foreshadow things like that, but I don't know. I just had that I had that feeling. Usually uh, if a character dies in one of his movies, it's it's um it's for a reason. Like it's it's not just going to be random. Actually, unless it's inherent vice. <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> that's different, but yeah. Uh, okay, so personal rankings. This ranks uh 7th on mine, so it's my second least favorite. That that doesn't make sense, right? I don't know. It's my uh, least favorite, uh, aside from Inherent Vice. I think it's good. I just think it's kind of a little boring and doesn't really pick the storyline up. Like, it doesn't really have much of a plot. It's definitely not a plot-based film at all. and doesn't really pick it up to move into that sort of second gear that makes it, like, a really, really great film. It's, it's, it's very character-based. And it also feels small, too, like, it compared to, like... Um, inherent vice or even the master like this feels more along the lines of like a punch drunk love and in, in the size of it mm-hmm. um i actually i would rank this number five on the list above okay. the master heart eight and inherent vice um i think mm-hmm. that all the performances are, are super good and, and solid um my one critique about and it's not even the movie itself i am uh, when, when they announced the, the oscar nominations and they they nominated leslie manville i was perplexed about that one because she's not in it a ton and she's fine but like to me the actress that played alma is the standout and i'm surprised they didn't nominate her yeah i'd say i liked leslie manville's performance and i thought it was really good but if you're gonna nominate anyone you've got to nominate uh the what's her name vicky cripes like she was better so not that but i don't i don't have any problems with leslie manville's performance I just think if you're not, you can't not give it to, to, uh, Alma's character and give it to, to her. Yeah. Instead. I, I think she, maybe she benefited from a weak field that year, but yeah, that's, I don't know. Did she get, she got, I'm sure she got, it was best supporting, right? Yeah. Yeah. I guess Vicky Cripes would have been, would that be supporting or would it be starring her and uh, Daniel? Right. I would think it would be lead, but like, yeah, they've done so, weird uh, things. They're in before. separate categories, then I guess. So that's you still know, lead, and, and yeah. So, but still, yeah, uh, yeah. So that pretty much completes it. Uh, I do have a couple of fun little game questions I've come up with here, and I've asked you ahead of time. Okay. Uh, so, uh, first one: Which film would you move in the timeline? So, which film would you say? Which film would you wish he made now that he made earlier, or? that he made earlier mm-hmm. or which film, you know, vice versa. Uh, I think I would like to see what he would have done with uh hard eight. If it came after Magnolia. Okay. Um, I feel like it was one of those cause he needed, he needed more, uh, behind his, he needed more experience. He needed more, uh, backing. He needed more funding. He needed basically everything that he accumulated from boogie nights on. He mm-hmm. needed more of that. And I mm-hmm. feel like he could have probably perfected uh, Heart Eight with, not necessarily would it may not have had the same cast and everything, but he he definitely could have made it more of what his actual final vision was than what he ended up uh, with at the end of the day. And um, I would have liked to see uh, what Phantom Thread would would have looked like um, if it came right after uh, um, There Will Be Blood. Having a back to back uh, Daniel Day Lewis, um, you know, would have been interesting to see the two variations. 
I would have liked that because I think I would have liked maybe a little bit of the intensity from There Will Be Blood to maybe rub off on Phantom Thread. I mean, I like I said, I like his subdued performance. I think it's it's different. Um, but it, because it's different, I would like to see it next to There Will Be Blood. For a comparison effect. I yes. got you. Uh, for me, I sort of would like to see either Hard 8 made just now, just to see what he could do. Uh, I don't think he would want to make it now, to be honest with you. I don't I, think he would either. I don't think because he's sort of not into that type of story right now. Yeah, um, that's why I think but, he, I think you would have had to have fit it in before he made the transition over. Yeah, that's true. Or maybe how would that story change with his, you know, more would he focus more on Sydney specifically or I don't know. Or the other one, I would like to see Inherent Vice moved back and done that uh, earlier in his career when he was sort of more engaged in the ensemble pieces and whatnot. Mm. Maybe he had a better hand on what was sort of got me. I don't know if, I don't know if, if anything, anything would save it. <laughs> yeah, if anything, just as an experiment, you know. I don't necessarily know if <laughs> it's not already <laughs> be improved by moving them, but I would just be interested to see what they look like. Mm. Uh, the second one, uh, which actor or actress would you like to see Paul Thomas Anderson work with? Ooh, that's an interesting one. Um, I mean, there's plenty that you can come up with. Um, I, I did mention earlier I would like to see Tom Cruise back again because I think that he would <laughs> uh, do uh, many great things with him again. As far as, far <laughs> as current actors right now, um, again, we mentioned Robert Downey Jr. Uh, yes. I think that he could fit in very well with one of his movies um, I don't know who's who's big right now. Um, I always would have. It, it's interesting to see. Um, uh, like Tarantino is is working with Pacino now for his new movie, and I I wonder what a Pacino PTA connection would have been, especially like earlier in the uh-huh. career. Yeah. Uh, but even now, like, what what would that look like? I could see Pacino in Magnolia somewhere. Oh, definitely. I think he could he. He probably could have played the uh, Philip Baker uh, Hall role, um, or yeah. maybe, maybe he, or no, maybe he'd want a bigger role. I don't know, but I like I like Philip Baker Hall in that role, but I could definitely see. Yeah, I think Pacino would actually blow that away. To be honest, that's a good that's a good snag there. Um, I actually would like to see Jim Carrey in a Paul Thomas Anderson film. Uh, I want to see Jim Carrey in just more things cuz <laughs> cuz I don't know where what happened to him. He just went away and I don't either, but I think he's great. I think he's a very funny, quirky guy that has some crazy range and I mean, look what PTA was able to do with Adam Sandler who yeah. most people agree are, you know, is not a significantly lower level than Jim Carrey and I just think that would just be some interesting possibilities there uh if Carrie was able to work with Anderson. Now I'm imagining Jim Carrey in uh, Phantom Thread. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you know what? I bet you he could do it. Maybe he I could. bet you he probably could. He might not be as reserved. He definitely wouldn't be as reserved. Um, but if it was more of like a an outlandish sort of uh, Reynolds Woodcock, I think he could pull that off. Hmm. Uh, which franchise would you put uh, put into the hands of Paul Thomas Anderson? See, this one was easy for me. Uh, the Bond franchise. Ooh. Uh, he he's already he's he's been doing these period pieces. I don't know how he does with action because none of his movies are really action heavy. 
but I, I want to. But advice is kind of the most actiony, right? For, I guess that's as close as you're going to get. Yeah. Um, but maybe you know what? I want to see a change of pace. I don't want to see an action-heavy James Bond movie, or at least we'll see what how he does with action. Maybe it won't be a ton of action, but um, yeah. I, I, I can only imagine what he would do. With, I, I feel like he would probably take the the Quentin uh, approach as you know making it a period piece, which is what he's been wanting to do for forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. I think that he would he would kind of probably do what Sam Mendes tried to do and was only successful once um, with the Bond franchise. Uh, I he probably would have to bring in someone else because I don't know if him and Daniel Craig would work well. Um, well, but, isn't he already out? who knows <laughs> but uh but yeah would you would you want an i just uh he just elbow mm, uh 007 directed by pta mm, no <laughs> i don't know i'd have to think about who his bond would be because my first <laughs> thought would be younger uh daniel day lewis <laughs> but um that obviously can't happen so i don't know who's like a uh, a British actor that would fill in that role. Uh, I don't know. I'll think about it and maybe I'll. It's funny. I was actually just about to do like James Bond's accent in Daniel Day Lewis's voice, but then I was like, wait, that's just like the same fucking thing. Yeah, it's not too far off. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it would have been recognizably different. <laughs> uh, for me, I, I uh, Batman popped into my head. Interesting. I Paul, Paul Thomas Anderson do a Batman film. You know, sort of dark and broody. Uh, character study kind of Batman-y film. Uh, yeah, I wonder what that would be like because again, you're dealing with like the action, and he would have yeah. to he would have to work under. But um, I think Batman, you can do. I think you can do a less actiony Batman. Yeah, you but, know? but can he work under Warner Brothers? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I don't. I didn't necessarily take every single aspect of this into consideration. <laughs> Just more of like the movie that I want to see. Like I want to see Paul Thomas Anderson with full control, mm-hmm. make a Batman movie, that kind of thing. You know, I, obviously that's not going to happen, but uh, I'd say if he was under a studio, I don't think he could make any franchise. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he'd work well under any studio ever. Like, I just think he's too much of a, I don't want to call him a visionary and sound corny, but I think he's too much of a guy that has too much faith in his own vision mm-hmm. to ever really, I mean, you saw that early on his, on in his career. He sort of struggled with that. And then once he sort of got some uh, some clout, he never really went back to that. And studios never really messed with anything, uh, you know, after uh, Boogie Nights, I'd say, or something like that. Uh, okay, I, I, have my, I have my bond. Um, oh, okay. I would either, uh, one of two, either uh, I would go Tom Hardy uh, as, as the bond in the PTA uh, Bond movie. I like that. Uh, or I would go um, Dan Stevens, one of the two. Dan. Who's Dan Stevens? Uh, have you ever seen uh, The Guest or um, what else has he been in? Uh, did you see Colossal? I just looked him up. Uh, man, I don't think I've seen any of his movies. Oh, well, that's no, a shame. I've never seen Colossal or The Guest. Well... Or I've, Downton Abbey, or well, he's British, and I think he could pull it off. And uh, okay, yeah, those are would be my two choices. I've seen a walk among the tombstones, but I don't remember him in it. I don't even remember that movie, to be honest. <laughs> uh, what films would you like? Do you wish Paul Thomas Anderson had directed? 
would you like to see Paul Thomas Anderson's version of? That was the toughest one for me to to come up with because it's it's kind of it's 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 hard to to say like oh he should take over the uh, this other person's uh, vision. Um, yeah, you're really up in arms about this question. Yeah, because I don't know. It's 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 weird to me. I don't know if that's like if if that's something that should be done or <laughs> if it's really. Uh, well, it- can't really be done so don't worry about the uh the morality of answering the question (laughs) (laughs) uh well i mean i i guess i would like to see what he i mean if we're talking i I feel like his two strengths have been uh you know um weird period films and large ensembles of quippy dialogue um Mm. and the only person that does those two is tarantino (laughs) (laughs) So I guess I maybe I, I I could see like a a, a PTA version of uh, I don't know like maybe like a Jackie Brown I could see if he okay. took over Jackie Brown I could see that I could see like all the like all the good parts from Inherent Vice sort of like the detectivey stuff that you know what little of that sort of worked sort of playing out there Yeah I mean it it I guess it, it could kind of work for that and even if you want to go to like I don't think you could do like a Django, but maybe a Hateful Eight, maybe. If if you want to go into the uh, his, the 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 period piece uh, side of things, and also yeah, and, have the cast. And keep, and keep in mind that whatever you know, I I kind of imagine this question as in like Paul Thomas Anderson is in charge of this, like from conception, you mm-hmm. know, from conception to completion. So not like you're about to start shooting and then you just re- replace, you know. PT, yeah. So, like, the story would be different. It basically just like yeah. the bo- the bones of the story would probably be the same or something like that. You know, I think it like could for, still work. Like for mine, I chose um, American Hustle because I think it's mm. a a pretty good uh, kind of uh, ensemble-y sort of piece um, that has it's very fast moving. Um, I like this, you know, back in the 70s setting so he can go back to his boogie nights sort of thing. You know, I think he'd do he'd do fun with that sort of that uh, that story. I think it's kind of a perfect story my, for him, actually. My only concern is, is that uh, because it's such a grounded movie, I'm afraid he would make it so weird that uh, it would kind of not be the same. It would it would change. The movie would definitely for change. Sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it would change. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's kind of the point of this. It's not like. OK giving him the movie and then the movie coming out and it just having the same effect. I wanted, I I wanted to explore the idea of like, like how he would flip a movie on its head, you know, and make it tough. Maybe I should have chosen a bad movie. (laughs) Yeah, you could have chosen a bad movie. Like the other one I I thought would be interesting would be joy. And I know they're both from David O. Russell. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that is like a more like a character study, you know, kind of thing that he's sort of good at. Um, so yeah, I kind of was try- just trying to think of like films that I could see him like taking that little nugget of the story or, you know, uh, the character or whatever and just totally running with and taking it in a, a different direction, whether better or worse uh, than the original version. Hmm. Okay. Well, yeah, that's, I don't know. That's I mean, the best I like I Jackie Brown. With. I think that's a good one. Jackie Brown's a good one. I could. And I don't get me get, wrong. I like Jackie Brown, but like. I love, yeah, exactly. And, and, yeah. you know, that's not to say Tarantino didn't put out a wonderful Jackie Brown. And I, I would hate to live in a world where Tarantino's Jackie Brown doesn't exist. But I, <laughs> I think that, uh, PTA could have done just as well, if not better. 
Yes, correct. Yeah. Um, all right, Sean. Well, thank you so much for joining me in the lounge. Oh yeah, it's uh, all it's comfy in here. It's very comfortable. I I've just uh, reupholstered the couches, so I've I've been in a bathrobe this whole time. Uh, <laughs> as you should, as you should. Well, it was a pleasure talking with you, man. And hopefully, uh, uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Back on. We can have you back on soon. Uh, if you catch up on your uh, Cohen brothers, maybe we can bring. Yeah, you why on don't that you one. catch up on your Nicholas Wynn and Reffin movies, and we'll talk. <laughs> Yeah, that's gonna be a while. Because <laughs> that that, that right. that's that one's gonna be five hours long. Yeah, I, I think this one was almost five hours long. No, no, no. I'm just kidding. But uh, well, thank you everyone for listening. If you made it all the way through, uh, hopefully, I don't have a set schedule for when these will be released because it's just sort of a little project of mine. But uh, hopefully, the next one will be coming out soon. And uh, be sure to check out the Lariat for some of my musings and writings on pop culture and whatnot. Thanks. Have a good night.